Hi, and welcome to our seventh episode of the Nerve Sending Podcast. This one features a very special guest, Tosh Berman, author of the wonderful memoir Tosh, Growing Up in Wallace Berman's World. Tosh is the son of Shirley and Wallace Berman, who were central figures in the underground art scene in L.A. during the 1950s through 70s. Wallace was a respected experimental artist who was friends with many famous artists, musicians, poets, and actors of that era, including Allen Ginsberg, The Rolling Stones, Dennis Hopper, whose film Easy Rider both Wallace and Shirley appear in, see it if you haven't, Ramblin' Jack Elliott, Dean Stockwell, and the list goes on. So young Tosh grew up around all these famous luminaries of the L.A. art scene, and it's interesting to see that world through the eyes of a child and teenager. It was great to talk with Tosh about his book and life in L.A. then and now. During our conversation, we found out that Tosh is also an actor who co-starred in several experimental art films with the Go-Go's drummer Gina Shock. He hosted a TV talk show called Tea with Tosh, and more recently a video series on YouTube called Tosh Talks. He's a publisher who put out a series of books under the name Tam Tam Books. He also published a book of his poems called The Plum and Mr. Blum's Pudding, and a memoir of his time following the band Sparks called Sparks-tastic. Thank you so much for listening. Now on with the show. Yeah, and it was especially cool that Nervous Sending invited us back to the Nerve Center after the show. Yeah, that was great. Hey, did you notice how much better the water tasted there than at Bob's place? Oh, yeah. It's like these earthlings don't appreciate good water. Oh, I know. I swear to God I was tasting chlorine and chloramines and lead and heavy metals and microplastics in most places we went. Yeah. It was, it was so, so much, much better, better at the nerve center. center. I think that, that was because of the water filtration system they had. What was it called again? Funny you should ask, because I got one for the spaceship. Oh, great. I got it from their website, nervousending.com slash perfect water. Oh, cool. Yeah. It was the at nine stage, what was it? It was the Home Master nine stage hydro perfection reverse osmosis water filter system. Oh, cool. So I'm glad we have one. Yeah, I figured, you know, if we have to stop and get asteroid water, it won't Ugh. actually taste like asteroids like it did Yuck. last time. That's, That's a, a good, good idea. idea. Mm, hey, what are you reading? Oh, um, this, this is, is one of Elias' books of poems that she gave me. And it's, it's great. She, she signed it to me and everything. She has original artwork and po- photos that she took in there as well. That'll be good for the ride home. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you, you, you can, can order, order it from, from their, their website, website too. too. I, I think, think we should tell our friends, friends to order it. We should tell Bob to get one too. Was it www.nervousending.com slash poems? Poems, yep. Oh, cool. Yeah, we should tell Bob to get one of those in a water filter too. Here, I'll beam a transmission to him. Okay. Bloop, bloop, bleep, bleep. All right. Mission accomplished. Yay. Okay. Hang on. Here comes the best part. Fasten your, your space, space belts belt for nearing the wormhole. He had total control of his work as much as possible. He 
He's on the cover of the Peppers by Heart Club Band. He's one of the faces behind the Beatles. My dad refused to close up. Okay. You could see my dad in the background throwing seeds in the uh, in the background. And like a lamp dip, he's someone in the weeds destroying <laughs> like throwing seeds. And if he if he didn't like the theme, he didn't want to be part of the show. As we've gotten the pathway, the house just crumbled down like tons of mud. Yeah. It won't be like a name dropping type of thing. It'd be more. It all fits into the narrative quite fluid and quite organically. That bloody face was rambling. Was rambling, My famous co-star is usually Gina Shock of the Go-Go. That could be full of like really strong characters. His and neck. And his girlfriend at the time had an alligator. She was a born criminal. She just did oh, crime wow. 24/7. But he mentioned Yoko knew my dad, and my dad knew of Yoko, but way before the Beatles. Yeah, you know the thing is, you don't come from nowhere. You come from somewhere. Everybody does. I'm hoping for the Cannes Film Festival, the Oscars, you know, blah, blah, blah. He's playing William Snell with his wife. We will do a show in your house, either in your closet or in the entrance of your closet. I'm an interesting actor because none of my films are available. <laughs> <laughs> Just buy my book. For support sure. me, love me, worship me. So welcome to our podcast, Tosh. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, for sure. Um, I don't know if you know anything about us. Nervous Ending, we're a band or a, a duo. and We're completely off the radar. <laughs> yeah. Nobody so knows about us. The Weather Underground or the FBI. Or- no, no, no. no, no. no. We're, Absolutely well, not. Yeah, we're, we're um, underground in the sense that we're like completely unknown. <laughs> we're pretty un- <laughs> <laughs> like. We're- well, allow me to be, you can be the- you can even become even more unknown. <laughs> right. <laughs> Our discussion. Um, outsiders, yes. We're, outsiders, we're outsiders. Yeah. In fact, I was going to say on the subject of outsiders. Well, I don't know if I don't know if you'd call your father Wallace and Shirley outsiders, but they were certainly. I mean, in a certain sense, they were insiders of of the outsiders of society. In a way, they were. I mean, they were. I don't know. To me, they're insiders. Insiders. Um, but <laughs> when I went outside, then I realized they were outside. <laughs> <laughs> That's I, funny. I feel like I I've, I got to know you. I just finished your book this morning. Oh, thank I've been you reading for it for reading the, it. I've been reading it for the last few days, and wow, wow, it was really neat. Yeah, I read it a while ago. I really liked okay. it too. Good. I'm glad you both read it. Thank you yeah. so much for reading the book. Yeah, I remember when she was telling me bits and pieces of it. I was like, I wonder if he knows Rodney Bingenheimer. <laughs> and then there I, I, you know, I've been in the same room with him uh, numerous times, but I never actually think ever at a actual face to face meeting. Yeah, I saw that in the book. I was like, oh, look, there it is. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I actually. You know, I feel like I know. I mean, I feel like I know him. Uh, but I don't. I, a lot of my girlfriends knew him, you know, um, when I went to high school. And, um, his, and I actually remember him visiting my high school during the lunchtime period. And he would hang out. Like in, to pick up in, chicks? In the schoolyard with us, huh? Like to pick up chicks? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I would say it was like he's like picking up chicks there, like he already knew the chicks. So it's sort of like oh. he. He he already picked up the chicks. It's just the after effect of the pickup of the chicks. <laughs> <laughs> if that makes sense. 
Yeah, young love. Young love. <laughs> so he was he was short, so it, you know he did sort of fit in with uh, <laughs> the students. <laughs> Funny. Um, so I was going to say Justin is more familiar with the L.A. area because he grew up down in. Wait, you can tell that, but I. Well, I grew up mm-hmm. in San Fernando till I was eleven. Over on the oh, east San, side. San, uh, the San Fernando, the valley, or is it San Fernando? Actually, San Fernando. Oh, real San Okay, San, the, the, the real thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We were the last, oh, wow. we were like the last gringo family in the barrio. Oh, wow. And then we moved out to Lancaster, and then I went to UCLA. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. But we're, we're both children of the 80s, so we're, it's a slightly different era than okay, what you're talking so about I'm, in your I'm book. through a 50, 60 yeah. Thing, so you're okay. So it would be interesting, though, to find out how things changed because, I mean, you've seen, well, you've been in LA pretty much your whole life, right? Or a lot, long time. Yes, for my entire, almost my entire, except for uh, one solid year in Japan, I have been uh, a Los Angeles citizen for my entire life. Cool. Well, it's certainly a cool city. I've actually never been to Los Angeles, if you can believe it. I'm. I'm from, You've never been to Los Angeles? No, I'm from Maine. I'm from like the other side of the. I'm from like another Jeez, planet. You're in Los Angeles. <laughs> I know. Are you in San Francisco? Where are you now? I'm in, well, we're up in Nevada City, so we're in the mountains, okay. the Sierras. Okay. Yeah, we're like gold country. Um, okay. But I was in Berkeley for a while. I did, I know the Bay Area. That's more, ah. much more familiar with that area. Um, Los Angeles and, and the Bay Area are. are, are we're very friendly to each other, but it's very there. There is a it is sort of a different culture. Yeah, well, I re- I remember, and so I actually discovered about Wallace because I re- was reading um, David Meltzer's book, talking with the or the you know uh, I think it's called the San Francisco Beat, and it's uh-huh. all the interviews with the beat poets because I'm a big fan of the beat poets, so. Mm-hmm. Of course, the name Wallace Berman came up in, you know, different interviews with the beat poets because he was a friend of a lot of them, uh, those guys. Uh-huh. Um, but David said that, did you know David Meltzer? Very well. And yeah. I, you know, of all the people to read about from the beat era, I feel that David is probably the most uh, honest and most truest person. Yeah, he was really cool. I met him too. Yeah. I met him and I, I really liked him. He seemed like really down to earth and kind of had a sense of great sense of humor. Yeah, he was great, and he was uh, again. He he knew not well because he lived the history. I mean, he's like probably one of the smartest people I have ever met. And he and uh, him and Jack Hirschman, both mm-hmm. totally separate people. The, to me, when you're when you're with them, you strike the first thing you think, "My God, they're so smart." Yeah, <laughs> it's like I mean, like their the knowledge in, that's in their head is like endless. Oh, cool. And I, also, they don't exaggerate about their history. Some people that era exaggerate it or color it uh, either to make themselves look better or just placing themselves in a more better surrounding. But um, my feeling is that David gives you a very accurate view of, those, of that time and period. And, um, and he has no ax to grind. You know, he has no chip on his shoulder. He's just telling you what it, what it, what it is or was. So yeah. he's a very good, reliable source for that whole, uh, that, that era. Cool, yeah, it seemed that way. He, he seemed humble, you know, he, he seemed a little more, I mean, he wasn't as famous or as well-known. No, as yeah, he's not, he doesn't, he's not egotistical at all. Um, 
that sense. So he's, he's, um, I don't know. I just really trust him. I, I, he's very trustworthy and, uh, and very, um, easy to talk to, at least for me. You know, I don't yeah. have to, you know, I could talk about anything. I, I, last time I had a discussion with him, we were talking about, uh, Pulp, the Jarvis Cocker's band, Pulp from, uh, you know, from England. And we were both Pulp bands at the time. Oh, I'm Pulp. Him. Okay. And, uh, so, you know, so it's never like, so, you know, it's never, you could talk about the past with him, but he was also very, very, um, um, present at the same, you know, at the same time. Yeah. I, I met him at a Lou Welsh, uh, it was like a Lou Welsh reading. Hmm. Uh, it was, you know, he's an interesting character. I don't know. Yeah. If, he, uh, I met him as a oh, child. Oh, wow. Um, interesting. I, I don't remember that well, but I do remember, I remember his presence of sorts. He he used to kind of he had like kind of a big booming voice. I'm imagining he was kind of a tall, skinny guy. I think he was kind of very. To me, it took me. You know, the child he was sort of very masculine and very. Yeah. Uh, uh, it's sort of like poets like him and Kirby Doyle, Michael McClure. Yeah, they had the sort of same type of um, presence to me. Yeah, and of course, I never met. Lou Welsh. I mean, he he walked out into the woods right near yeah. where we we live. Actually, he, he walked out into the woods pretty near where we live out here. That's pretty. Yeah, mountains. that's an amazing story. What's he? And, and he's also uh, um, Huey Lewis's stepfather. Right. Yeah. I know. Uh, that that's, that's sort amazing of, that's too. That's what I find remarkable. Yeah. <laughs> um. So. So that anyway. Um. I don't know. I'm I'm going off on a tangent, but I well, I was obsessed say, with Lou Welsh. I I no, I love the beat poets. I do. I love Lou Welsh. I have this. I had this like. I'm also a big fan of fantasy novels, and I had this idea of writing a fantasy novel about what had happened to Lou Welsh. Oh and, like, my gosh, the true story. The, the true story, like he actually, yeah, the the. I would hope fruition, that would happen but... to him. I, I know. I, don't... <laughs> I know. That's, that's a nice ending. Yeah. Or beginning. Anyways, um, but uh, yeah, that I I I'm a I'm the kind of person who I, I start a lot of novels and I never end up finishing them. I have a lot of un unfinished fantasy novels laying around in notebooks. But yeah, I have a lot of books around me as well. Especially, it's it's. I try to organize myself to whenever I pick up, I I feel I need to finish this book before I start the next book. Uh -huh. But sometimes I'm in a I'm sort of in a situation where I have to study something for yeah. for a writing work or research, and that's when chaos starts kicking in. That's when all things are picking up and leaving and picking something else up and leaving, which is. It's okay. I mean, it's not, you know, nothing horrific. Well, I'm not saying, do you mean like writing books? Like you start writing them? No, 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 reading. What I meant was I've started to write a lot of fantasy books. Oh, okay. And just, you know, just, I never finish them. Well, you have to finish them. Well, I know. I, no, I usually end up finishing reading the fantasy books. I I love. Okay. Yeah. But you have I, to, well, if you're writing, if they're you good, you know. that writing. I know. Okay. I know I'm terrible. I well, anyway, my problem is I can't focus on one particular medium. You know, I'm I do music, I do visual uh, art, I uh, visual art, mm -hmm. writing poetry, and uh, actually recently I did stand up comedy. 
which is a new thing for and me. And stand-up comedy. <laughs> stand-up comedy. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, Justin and uh, I both do a little bit of that. I was devoted. I actually, <laughs> I, am, I am drawn to artists like that. Because, oh, nice. Um, uh, I, I was a publisher until very recently. That's right. Uh, uh, Tam Tam Books. Right, and we, my main focus that. was on a, a figure named Boris Beyond. Okay. And Boris Vian was a novelist, but he was also a uh, musician, composer, songwriter, uh, jazz critic. Cool. He ran a he ran a nightclub in Paris in 19, late 1940s. I'm gonna have and to check this guy out. He introduced uh, like people like Miles Davis and Duke Ellington uh, into uh, French or Parisian lifestyle, or, or or gave them gigs at the time, right after the war, mm-hmm. World War Two. And Vian had many hats. He was very much of a person of uh, of much talent, but you know he was sort of all over the place. And um, and Jean Cocteau is another person that's sort of like that. Cocteau sort of did everything as well. Yeah, I'm so, I'm more familiar with Cocteau than with. Uh, yeah, Beyond is really interesting. Yeah. Interested in the beat. Cool. In a funny way, that whole existentialist, like Jean Paul Sartre, uh, Albert Camus, and Beyond. So Vian was not an existentialist, but there is definitely a connection between the French existentialist world and and the uh, and the beats in America. Cool. I'm gonna I'm gonna look into him. Thank you. Yeah, it's really interesting. There is definitely a bridge between. There is a connection between those two worlds. I feel like Henry Miller is part of that. He is, you know, because you know he went up. He he ended up in France. I mean, so many writers. Of that time period ended up in France, but um, but yeah, they were like the letterists. I don't know if you heard of them. But yeah, the, the letterists. Were, were they were sort of uh, were they pre-situationists or were they, they exactly? Was, yeah, they were sort of the um, like post-Dada. Uh, yeah, influenced by that, and then surrealism, and then the letterists, and then the what was this, their thing? Yeah, the letters are interesting. They're they're basically language oriented. And they also did visual art that's also very kind of letterish, <laughs> using letters. Oh, cool! But what's, in, what's interesting, you know, if you take if you if you look at a picture of them, and this is like late forties, early fifties, you see a picture of them, and you look at that picture, you think, oh my gosh, it's like a picture of the Clash, like nineteen seventy-seven or seventy-six. Huh? Because they had like their their hairs were kind of like really sort of punky cut. Mm-hmm. And they had actually like writing on their clothing, you know, like like hand 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 handwritten pants. Uh, oh, um, that's right. Um, and and uh, yeah, it was very much like sort of like hardcore punk rock um, imagery. Yeah, I think I have a book by Jean Michel. What's his name? Oh shoot, I don't know. I know Jean Michel, whatever his name is, and he was friends with Guy Debord, and then of course yeah. Guy Debord, sort of like. Uh, I guess it would be called canceled these days. Like, like yeah. the situationists were really into cancel culture. I, I mean, mean, it wasn't called cancel culture. Then. <laughs> it's like, okay, I'm going to break with you because you have offended me. And then they would just like never talk to that person again. Never, think, never, yeah, yeah I think the situationists off. were into that kind of thing. And I think Gita Board sort of developed the situationists, but it was a very like almost this, it was a very exclusive clique it seemed like you had to be in the you had to be well, it became, accepted it became very political and very political serious, that's the right yeah so they yeah. they sort of like eschewed 
the arts for art's sake thing. They thought that like that the letristes let weren't politically critical enough or something, and so exactly. Anyway, yeah, I I got into the situationists um, for a while. I was, I you know, got into like I had a, I was into the uh, Society of the Spectacle reading group. Yeah, that's a great book. Yeah, it's interesting. I was, um, I know uh, Ken Nab, who's the translator, uh-huh. uh, and I was trying to get him on the podcast. Anyway, we'll see, but uh, but it would be interesting because it's it's you know it's an interesting take on i feel like it's um critique of capitalism but it a uh, it it it's almost like um i don't know if they're marxists or what i can't quite tell i think that's kind of beyond that you know yeah. what i get from debor uh is writing and he's very poetic i mean he's not this he's not he's not like a theory writer he's, he, has right. a, he has a strong sense of poetry uh mm-hmm. the way he explains how he looks at things and how he expresses himself. Yeah, and, I agree. You know, in a way, it's sort of like looking at the world like like a map, which is you know they're into like maps. Oh it's yeah. It's like a way of looking, you know, like 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 the world is like a like a theater piece in a way, and you 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 have certain people there to make sort of the grand theater, and that's including you know politicians, consumers, mm-hmm. you know, um, Marxist, leftist, rightist. It's all. There to serve like the spectacle, and right. the spectacle is sort of the the um, the main drift of everything. It's sort of the, the it's like the show, the show of it all. They were kind of they were critical of the spectacle. I thought though that was like their they were kind yeah, of yeah because the way things are like sort of like set that way. It's like it's sort of it's sort of. Um, um, you know, you do something, and you when they re- and people respond in a certain way. So you're sort of stuck in a system, a systematic manner. Right. Uh, that, that that resonates. That feels like what's going on. Yeah, and I think that's why Saturday Spectacle like never goes out of fashion because it's it's a um, it's it's sort of about a system that's still in place of of sorts, or it is in place, and um, that has never gone away. And I, and I think Gideborg's writing also is always fresh because it does have that sort of poetic. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, he he also was influenced by Comte de l'Autremont, who I don't know. Have you read Isidore Ducasse's um, Maldoror? Because oh, yeah, that yeah, is yeah. a trippy book. I mean, I think I almost had a psychedelic experience reading that book because it's it, it's it just so weird. <laughs> it's like it's so different from anything else you've ever read. I think it's the most unique book book on the planet, or at least. I mean, the thing yeah. is, of course, we're reading a translation of it, and it's the yeah. Le- Lykeard translation, which is the only one I recommend. It's the Alexis Lykeard translation. Is that the exact change, or is, your t- is that an older... Uh, I have to go grab it from the bookshelf, which I could do for a second if you want, but it's it's the one that has, like, this dark cover. Like, There's a chair, I think, and, and like, this kind of... Yeah, okay, I think that's the exact change. Yeah, that's yeah. a great translation. And I, So this brings to to the point that how important essential translations are because you know you want a good translation and of course we can't i mean i don't speak french but i i i know people who who speak french very well fluently and have said that is the translation it's an excellent translation so yeah you know it's 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 you know not only the track because because my press 
did only translations mostly. Oh, really? Okay. Yes. The Tan Tan books. Fourth Gong is Frenchy wrote in French, and we and, and I had it. I didn't do the translation, but I hired and worked with the translator to translate the work into English. Cool. And the translator not only has to be a really good writer, a yeah. great writer, right? But they also have to have an understanding of that culture. So even right. goes beyond this language. It's, it's somebody they have to actually really get into that that writer's head to translate his work into another language, right? And so, you can't be from the same culture. You can't. It can't be a French person living who speaks English and lives in America. It doesn't work that easily because it has mm-hmm. to be like be either a British English or American English, and it has to be somebody from that that specific culture, mm-hmm. so they can go to France or whatever country and bring that culture into their own culture and right. into their own language as a book. Right. That's. Yeah, I don't, um, I don't know that much about that translator, Alexis Lakeyard. I just know that that was, is, is the recommended translation, and I thought it was amazing. But of course, I haven't read it in years, so. Yeah, I read both. I read, I think, the, I think there was a New Directions, like an old edition, probably from the 40s, or, mm-hmm. yeah, translation, and then I read the, the exact change, the one you're talking about, and I think that was done in maybe in the 90s or early 2000s. I can't remember when that book came out, that edition. But yeah, you know, it, if it generally, if it reads well to you and yeah. and um, um, it's not too stiff, mm-hmm. then that that's usually a good translation. I also read it in a room that I had painted clay gray in, in Portland, Oregon, in a, which... Is very rainy a lot, so it was like yeah. it was like the perfect uh, ambiance to read that book. It was like I was, it was almost like I was in a cave with yeah. it raining outside and like always gray and rainy outside. Yeah, be careful with that book in the rain. <laughs> I know. It's like, well, this is really weird, <laughs> <laughs> um, but it sort of brought it to life. Yeah, I, I think it's interesting how like the the atmosphere in which you read a book sometimes affects how you know how that book influences your like your experience of the book yeah where are you reading it for me it's strange when i read a book i usually can remember i sometimes can't remember the book but i always usually remember the location where i read that book interesting yeah uh-huh. that's cool um so i wanted to get back to wallace and your book and and other mm-hmm. um because I, I where were we uh okay so David Meltzer is the the, the kind of connection uh-huh. to where I discovered Wallace Berman. And he was talking about how he met, he first encountered Wallace and your mother, Shirley, um, at the New Directions bookstore, I think. They used to hang out there. City uh, Lights, maybe. Oh, well, but he met them in L.A. Oh, he met them in L.A. I think so. Yeah, he said he, he, was, he was down in L.A., uh-huh. And uh, he said that they were just this absolutely beautiful couple, and he uh-huh. was kind of immediately um, enchanted with them. And then he, you know, of course, met Wallace, and Wallace brought him over, and so then they became friends. Um, but where was I going with this? Um, and I think David was very young at the time. I think right. He was like 19 or something like that. Yeah, that was like when he first got to L.A., I think. Uh-huh. Wallace like introduced him to pot and 
was like, wow, this is ruined his life forever. But no, <laughs> I don't know, but um, so, but your mother, I, I'm very sorry, by the way, that for oh uh, yeah, yeah, um, that yeah, she's passed away last uh, January. Yeah, January was, the eighth. She was such a beautiful woman, like just absolutely strikingly gorgeous. Yeah, and she, yes, she was, and uh, very photogenic. Mm-hmm. Um, she she was uh, either fortunate or just surrounded by. Um, there's like main three main people in my mind that captured her image really well, and that's uh, my dad Wallace mm-hmm. Berman, mm-hmm. and then uh, a photographer by the name of Charles Britton, okay. who very much documented the whole sort of West Coast beat scene. Um, mm-hmm. And those years, and then um, Edmund Teske, uh, uh, a photographer artist um, who is much older uh, than uh, Wallace and Charles and everybody at that time. He was mm-hmm. sort of more of like a 1930s or 1940s um, figure or presence. But uh, he did like photo montage or photo collage, and he used my mother's image uh, quite often mm-hmm. in his work. And she, and, uh, so, yeah. Mm-hmm. Sorry. I, no, I, go ahead. I was interrupting. No, no, no. I'm, Justin says I have a tendency to do that. I'm sorry. No, no problem. Um, well, okay. I'm hearing the siren Sirens. in the background. Ooh, it's L.A. We're getting a little taste of L.A. up here in the mountains. Oh, yeah, you're getting the sirens. Yeah. That's so cool. I'm sorry. I, no, it's I, good. I can hear you, but I can't hear you, like, super well. Oh, Am okay. I coming clear to you? Yeah, you are. Okay, great. We can even hear your sirens. It's great. Yes. <laughs> Life goes on. <laughs> well, all you hear here is probably our refrigerator home. But um refrigerator home. <laughs> um anyways, uh what was I gonna say? Oh shit, so I I was going to say that Shirley was a model, right? She was also worked as a did she work as a model? Uh, not as a photo model, technically, but she worked as the artist model for, like, uh, illustrations for, uh, like, fashion illustrations. Oh, okay. And at the time, department stores had their own illustrators for their own ads. Yeah. So she worked for, I think, either Bullocks or May, May okay. Company. Okay. And she did, like, uh, she did all, not all, but she did print ads, um, illustrations of her like wearing hats, dresses, and stuff like that. Oh, neat. So she'd sit while somebody drew her kind of thing? Uh-huh, exactly. Okay, cool. And and she was the one who kind of was the breadwinner, so to speak. She brought the money. Yep. And she paid for you guys. You know, she kind of supported you and your dad, right? Yes, absolutely. That's pretty awesome and, and unusual, too, for that era, I think. I mean... You know, is she, it? She worked. I mean, my dad took care of me while she worked. She always worked. And not, uh, not, not when I, in my existence, she wasn't a model, but, um, but she worked in like boutiques mm-hmm. and, yeah, boutiques in Beverly Hills, okay. um, in Los Angeles, uh, when I was a, ch- you know, like a child. And she worked pretty much full time, I think. And then when we moved to San Francisco, she she worked for like a wine distributor in San Francisco. So she always went out and you know had the had the daily job, while my dad stayed at home and did his artwork and, and took care of me. Um, wow, that's but it is unusual, right? For that, I mean, most women didn't work that at that, especially no. at that time. No, so. 
my dad decided. <laughs> apparently, when I when 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 they had me, yeah, my dad decided I'm gonna stay home. <laughs> you, oh well, until sure you go work. <laughs> And was your mom all right with that, or was she sort of like, wait? Uh, I wish she accepted it. You know, she's a very yeah. accepting person. Um, yeah. You know, it was not, you know, it was a pretty much a, a it, it's pretty, it's it like usual, it was pretty horrific being a woman in in that time, in that world. Yeah. And, um, you know, though the beats were very advanced in many ways, they were not very advanced in sort of the man or woman. Uh, gender issue or you know women's um um women's women rights. are pretty much beat right. as like a second class citizen pretty much uh, throughout that time unless that woman is an artist like uh, joan brown or jada Payo of that sort if you're oh. an artist that's sort of you know you sort of, you sort of overcome anything in your background hmm. but uh but for you know my mom basically did work to and brought money into into our household, and because uh, my father didn't, um, didn't did not work, he did not work uh, on the outside of of his uh, of his studio. Did he sell his paintings ever? No, he had a you know when he was a teenager, he 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 did art. He did like uh, these really realistic drawings, but very surrealistic drawings yeah. of jazz musicians, and okay. he got a job. Or Dial Records, which is a, uh, a a record label in Los Angeles that is focused on um, bebop jazz. Okay. Yeah. I went and checked out the Charlie Parker you mentioned in the book. Exactly. Yeah. That yep. was neat. So he did the first album cover for a jazz album that the first time that Charlie Parker has appeared on a record. Oh wow. Seventy-eight record. Cool. And he actually met Charlie Parker and went. To I think to the recording sessions uh, when Parker did these recordings for Dial Records, which I think the recording studio was in uh, in Glendale, strange enough. Hmm. Um, and so my father was a huge jazz fanatic, teenager, and he was very much a hipster. I mean, not hipster in the 21st century term of hipster, but a hipster like being a white guy who loved jazz and he wore like zoot suits. Wow. And he was a dancer. He danced. Uh, he did like swing dancing, and he was very much of a a figure of the nightlife of Los Angeles and the jazz clubs during the um, during the war years and the uh, post war years. What your dad was? Yeah, he was very much into the into uh, music, and he hung out with jazz musicians, and he just sort of you know just totally embraced the entire Black American jazz world. Cool. That seems like a, a thing you got from your dad too. That love of music. Yes, I'm sure that's the case because there's always music uh, in our household, and you know, my earliest memories is music. Um, uh, you know, the, the, like the, the album uh, Lottie Lottie Lania sings uh, Bertal uh, sings Trevile Bertal Breck theater song. Uh, is probably the first album I ever heard. I mean, it's the first time I was aware of listening to an album or record. And to this day, it's still one of my favorite uh, albums, and um, and that definitely came from you know from my parents and, and their landscape. Um, was your dad? Did either of your parents play music at all? No, neither. I think my mom actually. I have a memory of my mom playing guitar and singing me a lullaby song. Oh, cool! To put me to sleep. Aww. 
but but that's a really faint memory. <laughs> that's so neat. Um, yeah, I, I just I do I do think that David Meltzer. Sorry, I'm bringing it back to David Meltzer. Hmm. Um, I think he's he, a musician as well. I know that's right, but and he mentioned that that Wallace like never would sell his work, but he would like he would trade like he would trade copies of his his publication Semin Semina. Semina. Uh -huh. Um to get books from City Lights, I think. He would trade. He's a big bartering fan. Um he in in the seventies, when we lived in Topanga Canyon, he made a deal with the grocer there to uh he gave him some artwork for uh food for you know for having getting things from the market. Oh wow, that's cool. Um he was very much uh, into that, um, it, it's very interesting because my dad's background was uh, not only jazz music but also a gambler. He was very much of a street gambler. Oh wow! Uh, playing cards, uh, dice, and stuff like that. And up to like the '60s, sometimes if we needed money, which you know often the case, he would just go out and play cards and bring um, uh, bring money back when he gets back home. He always wins. He never loses. Oh wow! So he was quite good. He was very good, and he was a good psych. He had good psychology as well, and playing games. Hmm. Did you learn? Did he teach you how to gamble? No, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm scared to death of gambling. Oh, I would okay. never do that. But, no, <laughs> I played cards with them, but his, his technique was basically to really psychoanalyze the other person oh. and make them feel really bad while they're playing cards. <laughs> well, um. You know, my dad had a thing about Ed Keenholz, the artist, Ed Keenholz. I don't know. I know there's a lot of people I don't know. Well, Ed Keenholz is a prominent beat era uh, assemblage artist in Los Angeles. Well, I think and he, he co-started co the uh, Ferris Gallery. Okay. Right. I think he was mentioned in the David Meltzer thing. Sorry. That's the one where there was the bust, right? Yes. And David was a good friend of uh, Ed Keenholz. And um, and and Ed Keynotes eventually met Walter Hopps, who's a very prominent um, art curator. Um, um, well, now he's known as Art but, but but then Walter started this gallery called Ferris Gallery with Ed Keynotes, and the first show they had at Ferris Gallery was my dad's work. Cool. And but Ed and my dad had a had a problematic relationship, mm. and it's and what happened was um, Ed didn't really like Walt that much, and Walt I liked Ed's work and stuff, but there's there's totally different characters, mm. and Ed and Walt finally decided to have a pool game among each other, <laughs> and. All the artists came to see this pool game. It was sort of be the, you know, the, the <laughs> final battle, the battle of the Titans. Oh, wow. And Walt, you know, Walt showed up at the pool game. People were there. And Walt on the chalkboard said, uh, Keenholz versus winner. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. And Ed lost the game, of course. And ever since then, Ed, I think, hated my father. Oh, wow. <laughs> Oh man. Um so I uh, oh man. Another thing about I was going to say um 
the book that stood out to me was like one of the first things you said was that rambling Jack Elliott, like his face appeared your window. <laughs> yeah. That's funny. I've met Ramblin' Jack once. Oh, yeah. Uh, huh? Well, I actually opened for him for a benefit concert. I, I So I do music, too. And I, the only reason I opened for Ramblin' Jack Elliott was because he was a friend of my former partner. Um, and it was a benefit for his... Um, he, he, was, he had cancer. And, and, it was uh, a, and he, he was friends with Ramblin' Jack, and it was a benefit for his... Cancer right, stuff. And anyway, um, but I but I opened for him, and he stayed with us. And didn't uh, you didn't you cook him spaghetti? I cooked him spaghetti. I'm a terrible cook. I was a terrible cook. Although Justin is a much better cook, and he's <laughs> uh, done something about that and improved my. But I think I put like way too much garlic in it. But he graciously ate it and said it was good. And yeah, well, garlic is good for you. I'm sure it is. It, it yes. is very good. And, so, what and was he like? What was he like? Did you like him? I just remember he talked a lot. He certainly rambled on and on. But, but my former partner Andy also rambled. They they just talked. They talked just rambled talked. on. Both they just of rambled on, and I couldn't get a word in edgewise. I, I just sort of sat there and cooked awful garlicky spaghetti. <laughs> well, my my earliest memory of rambling Jack. Yeah. Is it, it was in my book? Is is that? As a baby, as a child in a crib or, the, or my bed, um, my parents had continuously had parties of people over the house in Beverly Hills, like nonstop. Yeah. And so my, so I went, I was sent to bed, I was, you know, my mom put me in the bed. And from my bed, I could face the window in my room that, that faces the yard. And as I was falling asleep, I slowly saw this image of, a face coming up in the window, like a slow motion almost. Oh, wow. And he had blood on his face. And to this day, I think I still suffer trauma from it. And that face, <laughs> that bloody face was rambling Jack Elliott. Rambling Jack Elliott. <laughs> That's hilarious. And what happened was he went outside. He was drunk or intoxicated, and he fell outside my window. And he picked himself up by grabbing the window and, and you know, getting back to his feet. <laughs> but to me, it was like a horrifying, like, monster coming out of the well, depths of hell. Do you, I wonder how he responds. Has he heard this story? I wonder if he's read your book. or he, he, I don't he think he's still, he's still with us, correct? Yeah, I think he is. In yes, fact, I'm I, considering I, asking I, him to be on the podcast. Well, well see. That's great because <laughs> you can you can base I a know. whole show. Like I think you owe it. Tosh Berman an apology <laughs> or Jack. I mean, look what you did. Yeah, you ruined Although my maybe, you, well, no, you ruined my life, but you but, definitely put a force in my life that if it wasn't for him, it would not be there. But you get, but he gave you an interesting story. I mean, you have to admit he. It, it is an interesting um, sort of. Is one of one of the highlights of your books from book book for me but that's but probably because i met ramblin jack and that's kind of amazing so yeah you could ask him about it if you remember i mean he probably doesn't even remember it because i'm yeah. sure for him it was not a a, a memorable evening but for me it you know, it, it, it may have changed my life nice yeah he um he smoked all our pot well there you go but no he was he was a really cool guy he was really nice um he taught me a song on his guitar. He's a beautiful guitar. Oh my god! Oh, uh, great! Beautiful Martin guitar. Wonderful. Anyways, 
Um, but I'm going on and on about Jack. Oh, you know, he's the most famous person I've ever met. And so, yeah, well, they, um, uh, well, that's I think that's a good person to to uh, talk about and, and and to me, it's that's excellent. Yeah, but I mean, you met so many famous people. You met so then there was uh, Brian Jones from the Rolling Stones came over, yeah. and he was one of your favorites of, of the yeah, people. I lo- yeah, I loved him. He's a, he a nice guy. I, I met, so I'm a big. I'm a big Rolling Stones 1960s fan to this day, and cool. um, yeah, he was amazing because he was not was he he's not he might be the first like famous person I have met mm-hmm. that I knew who he was right away. Oh, okay. I met him when I was eight or nine years old mm-hmm. in that age bracket, and I was aware of music very well. You know, the whole yeah. Beatles thing that was part of my landscape in that world and and so I, I knew who Brian Jones was and and when I met him or when he came up to our house the one thing that struck me is you know usually when you meet somebody famous or you see somebody famous you notice they're like oh that doesn't really look like him or her or I, wow they have a big nose I don't know if that nose is so big or, you know, <laughs> stuff like that but Brian Jones was exactly like from his photograph oh right yeah He's even wearing the same clothes after <laughs> Matt. That's album funny. Session. And it's and it really like it. It was a, it was a strange. It was a, it was a strange spectacle. Yeah. <laughs> to see somebody you know of or heard of, and then finally having that person come into your existence or in your home. Right, I bet. Especially as a child. I mean, I don't. I can't think of. I don't think I met anybody famous when I was a child. Well, you well you but you did meet Rambling Jack Kelly when you're an adult, I guess. Yeah, I was person. I was in my thirty. I was thirty at least when I met him. So you know, you could write a whole book about it. <laughs> I don't know if I could write a whole book about it. Garlic spaghetti that and spaghetti Jack was Rambling really Jack. awful. <laughs> <laughs> a whole book about the garlicky spaghetti that I <laughs> I, I gave a pizza to Fonzie once. <laughs> the fun. There you go. That's what they <laughs> um, See, both of you should combine and write write a book so you can add you can add bits <laughs> of famous people. Yes, the food <laughs> but I also worked at a store called Book Stoop uh, in right. in West Hollywood, and at least five icon people per day would come through that store. Oh wow! One day we had I, one day I saw three James Bond. In one day. <laughs> wow. Wait, in an eight hour session. Yeah. Oh my God. What book were they getting? Was it the same uh, book? Good question. <laughs> uh, all three of them. One, oh God, what's the name? Um, uh, Pierce Bronson. And then uh, 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 Daniel Craig. Is that his, uh-huh. that's his name? The right? new one, the yeah. last James Bond. And then. Timothy, uh, Timothy, Timothy um, Dalton? Dalton, and uh, Timothy Dalton was into like, like sort of adventurous suspense books, and Pierce Brosnan was sort of like into everything, and so was uh, Daniel Craig. But the most James Bond to me was uh, Pierce Bronson because he had a driver outside waiting for him. Perfect. And he looked like James Bond. He, he had a very sort of James Bond, you know, manner to me. So yeah, I was very impressed with that. And then, and then I remember like three knighted people come in, or four knighted people come in one day. So that's how I sort of measure. Wait, knighted people? 
Sirs. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Yeah, like Sir so-and-so, yeah, yeah. Sir so I, I keep thinking, oh, my God, like three nights that this came in. They didn't know each other. <laughs> I don't think they knew each other. But, but within like eight or nine hours, you know, like a crazy combination of people will come in. And, uh, yeah, it's always, yeah, it's always fascinating. <laughs> Celebrity watching is always fascinating, especially in, in like in a retail store. Yeah, I, I used to work at the University Research Library at UCLA. And you get some celebrity students come in. Winnie Cooper from the Wonder Years was there a bunch. Ah, yeah, it's kind of it's yeah. It's, I sort of yeah. I'm I'm actually very fond of famous people. I like them. <laughs> well, you're in the right place. It seems like L.A. area. I mean, you there's a lot of yeah, famous especially, people. Especially around like there. in certain bookstores or certain locations. There, yeah, because it's the industry, you know, city, and every everybody comes to Los Angeles or New York. So yeah. eventually. I mean, except you. You have not come to Los Angeles. No, I mean, I'm terrible. I'm from Maine, so I, yeah, we just no, like don't you, have any you, famous you, people you, in Maine you at least except have for to come like at least for twelve hours. I know. I well, I'd like to. Now I'm going to have to. Maybe yeah, we'll should. we should play a show. Like we're well. So our band is Nervous Ending. We're we're looking for venues. So if you know of any, we'll come down. We'll play L.A. We'll play in L.A. We're, I live near Zebulon. You know, heard of Zebulon? No, no. what's this? It's a great club. It's the no. It's not really an underground club, but they 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 um, book lots of experimental music people. Cool. Of all sorts, and it's a really nice club, and it's in Los Angeles. It's in um, technically, I guess, in Atwater Village, and um, yeah, it's a really good club. It's a, yeah, they do great shows here. Awesome. Well, we'll yeah, we'll try to get down there to do that. Yeah, you should. We just submitted our first tiny desk contest submission okay well i hope you win thanks me too we probably won't but <laughs> no, <I don't laughs> you hear that everybody vote for us <laughs> yes vote for them Come on. What, what, what's, the, what's the name of your band or the name so of- it's called nerve ascending it's a pun nerve ascending nerve ascending yeah we like puns music for okay, the end of the world well, good i, I mean what kind of music is it? It's singer songwritery, I'd say. It's like huh. pop folk, indie folk, indie pop. Indie pop, so I'd you, say more indie you, pop. Do you both do you both write the songs or like yeah. individually write the songs or? We both write the songs. We sometimes, sometimes come we together. Yeah. Um, is it a band or is it just you two? Well, it's just us two right now, but we're looking for you know a drummer. That'd be great. Mm. But we're doing some self production. We um. Oh, cool. Yeah, we we have. A, studio here which is what we're doing this podcast and right okay great well that's um, wonderful keep at it thanks yeah you're you're kind of a music buff right you i mean i uh music is my life as a as a as a fan as a consumer you did you did a a show you've done a couple different like talk shows like you did a sh- talk show t- tea with tosh where you interviewed yeah i did it uh, in the 80s I did a cable TV show called Tea with Tosh, and I interviewed artists of that time, but also a lot of beat people like uh, Jack Hirschman, uh, George Herms, uh, and then people like Russ Tamblin, who's an oh. uh, actor, but he was also, uh, also an artist. And then I, uh, music people, I interviewed Peter Case. Uh, who was in the Plimsoll, but now I live in the San Francisco area or Bay Area. And then Frank, the lesbian Jewish folk singer, mm-hmm. 
uh, a guy named Dark Bob, who's part of a group called Bob and Bob, is a performance art art performance. He also does music. Uh, and I feel like I'm missing somebody. Oh, and my big hit was Phil Glass. I interviewed Phil Glass. Right, I saw that. I I want to check him out. I'm I'm I've checked out some of them, of course, but I haven't I haven't gone and watched all of them. But I think there was one you did of this punk singer or you. Ah, uh, uh, yeah, uh, Youth Brigade. Um, yeah, that was it. I saw that is, one. Uh, I forgot his name. I forgot his um, name too. But I did watch that a while ago. Um, yeah, he's interesting because he had his own label. Besides the band, he had his own label and he did all the bookings. And he mm-hmm. did, you know, he sort of did everything. He's an on-hand person. He did everything. Um, cool. That that's really neat that you were doing that at a time when. I mean, that was like before podcasts or, I mean, now it seems like everybody has a podcast, but, um, I mean, there's a lot of podcasts right now. It's like kind of. Yeah. Cable, the cable world was interesting because cable was new then, like in the eighties. Yeah. And by law, uh, cable companies had to have free public, no, was it free? Yeah, it was free, free public access to, to people who, you know, for that neighborhood. Okay. So you got a lot of strange people doing strange TV shows, like half an hour shows on cable TV. Hmm. And what they would what they would offer is, you know, they have two cameras, right, uh, and a mixing board, or you know, like a whole TV production thing in a in a small studio. So most of the shows were were, were talk shows, but sometimes there were cooking shows, or some you know people just talking about UFOs, or <laughs> stand-up comedians would do like a half an hour bit, um, and it was all it was totally un, it was totally a chaos, a totally um, um, you know basically what is is a is a person who would who would do these shows, you would have a half an hour to set up, and then a half an hour to do the actual show, and then that's it. You have to get out because. There'll be another show coming right after you. Oh wow! So it's sort of like early TV meets, uh, um, but very eccentric programming and shows and stuff. Huh. Interesting. In a way, it's like YouTube. That YouTube is actually kind of more normal than cable TV. Really attracted a lot of eccentricities. <laughs> I mean, this was in the '80s, right? This was this was like in the late '80s. Like, yeah, 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 it was like in 86, 87, something like that, yeah. When I was like eight. Like You're eight? eight? Well, I was so, younger. So you didn't, you, yeah. didn't, you didn't watch my show when you were no, I'm sorry. eight years old? <laughs> like, oh, look at Tosh. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, no, but, uh, yeah, I was probably like watching you know, Sesame Street or I don't, know, I don't know what I was watching back then, but Sesame Street was good. The public access was a lot of fun. It was cable, cable. It was, and then I became sort of addicted to watching all the other shows on public access because it really, really. Yeah, there's one guy who who called himself a doctor, but he's definitely not a medical doctor or even a psychologist. <laughs> but he just focused on UFOs. Oh, well, wait, you had him on. Wait, oh, this is no, no, no. Guy. He had his own show. Right. Oh, wow. That's funny. Yeah, he just had his own show, and then there's all sorts of like. Um, and also, at the time, gay liberation was happening. So there were, there were. I remember there was like gay or lesbian themed. Yeah. So it was mostly interviews with you know with um, um, either gay artists or people involved the gay liberation at that time. And probably AIDS. AIDS was a huge, of course, um, 
uh, topic matter, of course. And I think there was like shows about AIDS, you know, information about AIDS, AIDS information as well, talking about the political applications of, uh, of that whole era. Mm. Yeah. Um, let's see. Reminds me a little of public radio. It is like public radio, yeah. sort of like uh, our KPFK. KPFK. Oh, I miss KPFK. That's a big difference. It was not. There's no like music director or 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 political director. It's like for anybody who will show up, you know, at a particular time, you could do the show. You know, it's there's no standards of any sort, if, if I can remember. I'm sure you couldn't do pornography or anything like that sort of course, but. You can pretty much say anything you want. Uh, I don't think you can say any, any you know, dirty words, so-called dirty words. But that's it. I mean, but you can talk about anything you you want to talk about or show anything you want to show. Yeah, I guess that's a little different than YouTube now, huh? Yeah, YouTube. It is. There is a different vibe. You know, it's funny. I went to because um, uh, I because I do I do YouTube um, like talks. I have a thing called I have a thing called Tosh Talks. And I just do little lectures and sometimes interviews with people. Uh, but I did go to a YouTube station um, studio. Oh, wow. And I guess if you have a certain amount of subscribers, I don't know what it is, you know, thousands, you, the YouTube will supply you a studio. Oh, wow. So, I it's very, so I went to this place, and it very much reminds me of public access, except it's a lot more money. <laughs> I mean, a lot more money. I mean, you know, beautiful studio. Wow. And they had like foods and drink out for anybody. And, you know, coffee, tea, you know, pastries, fruit. And then there's all these shows being done all throughout the building. And oh. so it's very much like, like cable public access. Um, but um, I, I don't know if that has changed because maybe the virus, the uh, COVID situation may have changed all that. But, 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 if you're like a high rated or you got a lot of subscribers, you, you, you could, you're allowed to use like a YouTube, uh, uh um, studio. Wow. Interesting. Goals. Mm-hmm. You got goals, Bob. Yeah. But I'm, I'm so underground. I never got to that point of, you know, getting thousands of subscribers. So I do it in my living room or in my bedroom. Nice. So what are you working on these days? Uh, I just finished writing a script based on my book, Toss. Um, and I wrote it with Nick Ebling, who uh, did a movie, a documentary on Dennis Hopper called Along for the Ride. Ooh. And he and his producer um, optioned my book to make a film, and they offered me to write the script with, with him. And we just finished the script, and we're going to show it around. So I think I feel it has a good chance. Oh man, it's gonna have such a cool soundtrack. (laughs) Yeah, it was it was really fun. I mean, I really enjoy, and more important to me, I really enjoy the writing process of working on that script because um, it's such a different process than writing a book. And it's you know, a script is like a foundation for other people to get information. You know, it's like it's not only telling the story, but it's also for, of course, the actors to get to the character. But it's also for the location people to you know to figure out the location. It's for the people who budget movies to to look and read it, and they put it, make a budget out of that. And it, it's you know it's kind of, it, it, and the production manager. So it's like it, it's 
it's like a, it's like a, it's sort of the foundation for a lot of things when you write a script. It's not this, it's not like an art thing. It's really sort of a, um, a tool for the people that you. It's kind of like a blueprint. It is a blueprint, exactly. So that's so cool. So there's going to be a movie made of Tosh. There will be a movie made of Tosh. That's so cool. I I can't wait to see it. I'm excited. All star cast. Yeah. Well, no, I think. (laughs) I think no. I think it's going to be a great. It's a great book for a film. I I really think. I mean, when I when we were Uh, reading it, in fact, we said like, I think this would make a great film. Didn't we? Yeah, it was really did, fun yeah. because I'm, I'm working with an, a film person, you know, so he taught me film language and how, you know, write a script, actually. Nice. And it was really, I mean, I learned so much through going through this process, but it's really interesting to go through my book and making it into a movie. Because, you know, a book is a book, movie is a movie. You know, right. I, I believe the mediums are different from each other, you know, like um, the music. Right. You know, seeing a live show, seeing a live show. It's not a recording. A vinyl record is a vinyl record. It's not a CD. A CD is right. a CD. You know, there's a huge difference. And same with go- like movies. You know, like you go to a movie theater is a totally different experience than seeing a movie streamed in your in your living room. Like or an arts room. film, like like well, your dad's film, for example, Aleph. Mm-hmm. Aleph is that what Aleph, it's called? Uh-huh. I mean, that is a that's a piece of art, kind of. It's a, it's a it's a film that is. By the way, we just watched. But we saw it, it on we, we saw it on YouTube though. Yeah. So know, the medium well, changes the whole thing. Yeah, well, that's okay. That's very interesting. Um, yeah, and uh, yeah, it works in every it works in every medium, but it is different when you see it projected on on mm. a wall or on a screen. Okay. Yeah, when my dad made that movie, uh, he only showed it like one to one or like three people at the most. He never mm-hmm. showed it in a theater. Huh. What he would do is, you, you know, somebody would be over the house, and Walt said, do you want to see, yeah, you want to see my film? And he'll take his 8mm projector, and it's 8mm film, originally, standard 8, and he'll just project it on, the, on a refrigerator wall, I mean, a refrigerator door, or a white, you know, a wall, somewhere on the wall with his face, mm-hmm. and that's it. And sometimes he'll, it's silent, but sometimes he'll play music uh, with it if he's in the mood. Uh, I feel, you know, he has the feeling to do that. But it was way after he passed away. It was actually in this century, the 21st century, where we first projected that film. 16, uh, we made it, made it into a 16-millimeter print. Mm-hmm. And the first time it was projected was in London at a movie theater. Wow. And it must have so, been a different experience. A, for, go ahead. It must have been a different experience watching it, like, for you. When you watched it on the projector, yeah, because strange to be in a with an audience full. It was a full audience, and you know they're there to see you know to see this movie. It was a totally different experience. Um, the film it seems to have like a hidden message to it. It's, it has it's, a what? Like it seems to have a hidden message. It it has all these 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 letters or this writing that kind of seems yeah, to go through it. I think yeah, you know, my dad's work I think overall has that aspect. Had hidden messages in it that I wouldn't say hidden messages, but, but very textural and yeah, and it's it, it's it's like a it's like a collage, you know. It's it's a collage, but it's on the on the medium of film, right? So it 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 moves <laughs> obviously. So there there is there is a it's not like a message like telling you something direct. It's not like you know it's not giving you like. Uh, uh, go and eat spaghetti tonight <laughs> <laughs> with Ramblin' Jack. 
that's like, that's kind of a message. But, but, but I think there's like, there's, there is like dual meaning, you know, uh, uh, in my dad's work generally. He's never specifically about one subject matter. It's, 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 it's dealing with lots of nuances and lots of, um, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's sexual, it's, it's clinical, it's poetic. Mm-hmm. It's, it's very, 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 very layered, his work overall. Yeah. It and seems all like of that. the film is very layered in the same way as, as his, you know, his, 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 collage, his collages. Didn't it take him 20 years to make that film? Kind of, yeah, it, off and on. It's not like he worked every day right. you know, for 20 years. But like off and on, to finish it. at his leisure process, he, he, he filmed, he, he edited, painted on the film. It was, it was, it was a long process. Mm. That's the interesting, interesting thing, you know, because you know, we were talking about the, the Stones earlier, um, and I put the wrote this into my book. We we were invited to go to this um, show called the Tammy Show, T A M I Show, mm-hmm. and it was probably it's like the first film rock and roll show. It was it was a rock and roll show made for to be shown in a movie theater and so on. Oh, wow. And it was a great, it was done in 65 and it was like the Rolling Stone and a lot of, a lot of groups and artists in Motown, you know, like. Was uh, that the one with the uh, Supremes and, and Curlers? Yeah, Supremes, okay. Marvin, um, uh, 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 The Miracles, Smokey Robinson and The Miracles, <laughs> James Brown, who has a really legendary, remarkable yeah. performance. Wow. And we were invited to, to uh, the dress rehearsal. Oh, wow. And my dad brought his camera with him. You know, at the time, there was no paranoia about shooting anything at, at that time and day. Mm-hmm. So we watched the Stones on stage rehearse, and we saw the Beach Boys, I remember, rehearsing, and, and the Supremes rehearsing. And my dad could have stopped them if he wanted to, but he didn't. And anyway, so the Tammy movie gets made, and we go to a movie theater to see the movie. And my dad brought his movie camera with him in the movie theater and shot the Stones footage. Oh wow! In the movie theater. Interesting. Yeah. So, so it's it's it, the the fact that he could have stayed for the Tammy show because we were invited to to, to see the actual uh, concert, but he he didn't want to stay for the concert. So he actually shot it from a movie screen, and that's like a texture itself. He's shooting. He could have shot them directly, this camera and him, yeah. but he chose to shoot it through the medium of film, the image of the Rolling Stones. Interesting. Yeah, your dad seems like a really interesting character, kind of a mystery. He was a fascinating person. Was he a mystery to you, too, or did you, did you feel like you got him? Do you feel like you understood him? I understood him as much as possible. You know, he never really uh, talked a lot. He was quiet. He was not. He was not a conversation. He was quiet, and he was, you know, my whole life with my dad. He pretty much took care of me as a child, yeah. While my mom worked, and we didn't have like father and son discussions. You know, we didn't talk about life. We didn't talk about art. Didn't talk about nothing. I just basically hung out in the studio while he did his artwork. Hmm. And my sole purpose, besides playing by myself there, was uh, putting records on the turntable for him while he while he works. Wow. So I learned how to operate a, a mini, you know, uh, record player at very, you know, very young age, putting, you know, 45 
RPM singles on the turntable for him. Cole? And he would, he yeah. would, he, and he would insist on hearing one song over it, over it, over it, over again. And you're probably really young. How, how old were you when you were putting these records on? Probably like seven, six years old. Oh, okay. Up. Okay. And that's when you were, you were at the Stone show when, I mean, this big show, yeah. you were like, you were seven or whatever. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. Yes, as an early young seven-year-old, eight-year-old music fan, it was like the, it was the ultimate of the ultimate. It was like unbelievable. Yeah, I bet I couldn't imagine. And, and the image thing was kind of interesting because when I saw the Beast Boys, mm-hmm. uh, they had striped shirts, white pants, which is you know the, the Beast Boys were always kind of square looking. Yeah, I mean the image of the Beast Boys I think one has now is totally different than like if you're living in the six, early sixties. And right. There's like the Rolling Stones and the Beatles. Then there's the Beach Boys. The Beach Boys are always like really square looking. Right. And the Beach Boys were look really square on stage. They had like <laughs> these bright shirts, you know, like a uniform. Right. And then the Supremes came on, and I thought, okay, they're going to be really glamorous, but they were. They had hair, hair curlers and scarves around their hair. <laughs> so they're still putting makeup on and getting themselves ready for the show. But they just for the sound for the sound test, you know, the uh, sound. Um, Sound check. Uh, 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 what do you call it? Um, what's the term? Sound. Sound check. Sound check. Thank you. Right. <laughs> the sound check. There's like you know they they were just wearing you know, hair curlers and scarves around their heads and just slack. Uh, and so it was really interesting the contrast between the Beach Boys who are totally dressed up for the <laughs> for the dress rehearsal <laughs> and the sound check, and then the Supremes were like very funky looking at the time. I love that you you seem to have like a really good eye for style. Like just from your book, I got that. Like you you really pay attention to clothing and and you have a sense of style. It seems like from an early age. I hope that is the case because <laughs> I really actually have a great admiration for uh, style. And yeah. you know, I, I've always been drawn to like the mods of the sixties, and mm-hmm. I like. I'm not a clothes fanatic by any means, but. I'm definitely attracted to images of people dressed well or looking good or has, or they can communicate visually by what they're wearing. And it seemed that your parents had a sense of style, or at least your mother certainly. They definitely had a sense of style. Yeah. And, you know, since my mom died, I've been going through, like, photographs galore the last two months. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it, it, there's never, like, a bad picture of my mom, ever. Oh. Yeah, she was absolutely beautiful. There was no, there's no casual picture of my mom at a party, or you know, looking weird, or you know, she never wore anything like strange, like flared pants. It's always like they always look really, really good, nice. and they did dress really well. And um, my dad was very much of a dandy of, mm-hmm. of his own making. Um, uh, you know, as I mentioned, as a teenager, he was a zoot suitor. Do you know what a zoot suit is? Not really, but... Um... Zoot suit is, a, is like a 1940s um, suit that was prominent, uh, uh, that was prominently um, worn by uh, um, either uh, lat- uh, young Latinos okay. in Los Angeles and or uh, young uh, uh, black Americans using the, you know, connected to the jazz world. So you'd have and a tie, and, and you it's just like a, a suit. It's a suit, but the jackets are very long. The jacket will end oh. like you, at your knee. Oh, wow. And the pants are really, like, oversized. <clears throat> so everything looks kind of oversized. Mm-hmm. And you wear a tie, or, you know, something of that sort. 
But it's, it's, it's very colorful, but the cut of the suit is, is, you know, the jacket is really long. But, so the jacket looks really big on you, but it fits. Okay. But, the, but, the, but definitely the end of the, the jacket sleeve will go to, to the knee. If, if you're standing, it will, it will go to your knees. Okay. And that's sort of like a uniform at the time. And, um, and it was very popular, that look, with the Latinos and the American Blacks. Not that much with, of, uh, of, um, with the whites at the time. My dad was sort of a, a person who adopted his uh, look from, uh, from Black America. Well, he seemed unusual, too, because I, re- I read that in your book, and I read the part about how he would bring his cat on around his neck. Yes. His cat. <laughs> So he would walk around in his zoot suit with his cat attached to yes. his, his and neck. his girlfriend at the time had an alligator. <laughs> Wait, what? Oh my goodness. That was not alligator. Your, not Shirley. This was a, a girlfriend. No, yeah, yeah, not Shirley. Pre Shirley. There's another, another girl. Oh, wow. Her, her name was Lori Fox. And um, she was a born criminal. She just did oh, crime wow. 24-7. Yeah, and alligator, wow. but she, but yeah, my dad, my dad had had a cat, and his mother was allergic to, to cats. Oh, I didn't so. mention them, but but that's why he took his cat around with. Him. Oh, okay, I see. Sorry, I I forgot that part. Uh, no, no, that was I, I forgot to mention it in the book, mm. but I did, I did, I did mention that he did have his cat with him. Well, I know because Shirley saw him, and she thought, yeah. "Who is this guy with his cat around his neck?" Yeah, but he was very good looking. I think she saw she the cat or my dad. Oh, <laughs> both of them. No, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> this man has a very good-looking cat around his neck. Yeah, very handsome <laughs> cat around his neck. <laughs> um. Anyways, uh, so what else should we talk about? Well, um, I don't know. So that's so cool that you're gonna have this film made of. Yeah, right now we're showing the script to produce the other. We have a producer, and we're going to show it to other producers and try to get, you know, backing to do the movie. Do you think that it'll be a different kind of, like a kind of an artsy film that, I don't know, that's a little more, is it like, what kind of a film do you envision for this? It's very, um, it's going to be in black and white mostly. Oh, cool. I could see that. Yeah. And there'll be some color in a certain sequence that will be in the movie towards the end of the movie. Mm-hmm. But it's 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 going to be very um, it's going to be kind of dreamy. That sounds be, appropriate. It's going to be full of like really strong characters. I think you know as, as you watch the in, in the uh, you know when you watch the film, I think the characters are going to be very very strong. It'll be all very interesting. Cool. So it's 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 going to be a commercial movie. It's not it's not going to be a, it's not it's not an art film. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a narrative film, and it will be uh, a, a film full of like really strong characters. And it's um, um, and it's both basically it is going to be the story of, of me, but but you know really that re, that really focusing on, on my parents as well as their world. Mm-hmm. So there's be people like Michael McClure involved, and there's a little bit of Brian Jones in there and stuff. So it won't be like a name dropping type of thing. It'd be more. It all fits into the narrative quite fluid and quite organically. You're gonna have to find people to play Wallace yeah, and well, Shirley. They, yeah, right? we do. Yeah. So, oh, that must. Know, that only must... big stars. Only you know the biggest stars. You know. Right. Well, they're gonna have to be good looking to play Shirley. 
Yeah, or, that's a, a very know, a long neck. A beautiful, <laughs> strikingly beautiful woman. Yeah, um, like, yeah, they have to be. And and you'll have to. It must be odd to have to pick somebody to play you. That would be hard. Just just a really adorable, cute little, little <laughs> child. You know, yeah, it's gonna be that hard. <laughs> you were adorable. You were I, the pictures. <laughs> you were you. very cute. <laughs> but um, I'm, we're play technically. We're, we're gonna have to get three kids to play me. Right, of different ages. And hopefully we can find, like, a brother. Be, idealistically, it'd be great to find a family that has three sons. Oh, yeah. Uh, or a beautiful daughter that can play me as a child. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you were you were sort of androgynous. In fact, Shirley was, too. She had the yeah. beautiful kind of, I mean, very feminine, but, like, she had a certain uh, boyish look to her, too. She can, yeah. But she was very beautiful. Yeah, Sorry, I keep saying that. Woman. Keep saying she was so beautiful, but she really was. So I I totally agree with you, and, and a lot of people do. So, um, um, it's unfortunate she had a funny looking son, but that that it happens. No, stop it. <laughs> You're beautiful too. <laughs> yeah, so so. Um, but we'll see. But no, I I think Wallace and Shirley were just well, but also just beautiful people on the inside. They just seem like really interesting. Well, they're very complex, you know, and I think the movie is going to bring up the complexities about. Uh-huh. Uh, that's one thing that's different from the movie and the book. I think in the movie we can, we we will show the transformation, mm-hmm. and it's not it's not a black it's not a uh, the black and white movie, but the people the characters are not black and white. They're they're very complex and very uh, textured, like mm-hmm. my dad's artwork. It's a very textural. Uh, medium film, and we're going to express those characters in that medium such a way. Cool. Um, I was going to say something, which is um, that. Uh, oh gosh, I'm like I'm spacing out. I'm sorry. This happens from time to time. Um, Perfectly okay. Okay. The one character that that. Really, every time I hear about him, and he was a big feature in your book, was Dean Stockwell. I knew about him from yeah, Quantum Leap. He's a big part of the movie as well. Yeah. Um, he's 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 my dad's best. He's one of my dad's best friends, but probably the most prominent one in my memory. Um, and Dean was a yeah. He's a, and sadly, he passed away last November. Oh, did he? December. So oh. it's, yeah, it's been a strange last six months. But it's um, but yeah, Dean was very important in the whole landscape of my father and mother's life. Yeah, what a character and complex indeed. Yes, he's a very interesting man um, in many ways. Uh, he's a wonderful, uh, he's, well, all, he's a wonderful actor first of all, mm-hmm. um, and he's also a very, very good artist. Um, hopefully, I mean, one of the great things I hope that come out of the well, the book, but also when this film gets made, that his artwork will be exposed more. And uh, yes, it's a it's a whole world that that my dad's and mother's world is very interesting, a very visual world. And hopefully, that visual aspect will come out more and more as you know as time marches on. 
Yeah, it was really, real, real eye-opening. All these names and what people were doing. It's like I have to go and research more. I was like, and now I, I opened up a, a hole that I can go explore. It's really. Do you know the book? Do you know my dad? There was a show uh, called Feminine Culture. Or are, do you are you aware of that? Mm -mm. No. You should get the book is still around. You can still get the, the catalog, and I think both of you will find it really interesting because it it's deals called... with my dad making Femina, which oh. is. I should explain to you a podcast is um, a journal that my dad made handmade. Um, he made like nine issues. If I'm getting that correct. Nine issues. Each edition was like a 100 and it's all handmade <clears throat> and hand printed uh, in a little portable little printing press that he had. And it's all poetry and art. And he would give away them enough for free to people, people he, he knew or people he admired. <clears throat> and um, very rarely did he, he didn't, he only sold, I think only once at City Lights Bookstore. And you could buy it for like a dollar or something like that. But that it was only like for one issue he did that and never did it again. So he'd send out Semina to, usually for the mail, to people he admires and likes. And, um, Many years later, way after my dad passed away, it was actually in 2004, uh, there was a show that traveled in the U.S. called the Seminole, Walsh Berman and the Seminole Circle, uh, Seminole Culture. And a book came out of it that's still in print. And what's great about the book, not only about my dad and mom and stuff, but it may be equally important or more important in some cases, it also deals with my dad's social world and his artistic world at the time. So there's there, so that it features like artwork by Dean Stockwell and then Russ Tamblin and George Herms and uh, poets like Kirby Doyle, Michael McClure, you know Tony Basil, um, uh, various people who do who Michael McClure is very well known, but the others are maybe not as well known, but equally talented as the as the others. So Seminar Culture is a really good uh, book for you for both of you to get. Yeah, I we'll, recommend we'll it. check it out for sure. Thank you. Yeah, um, it's 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 essential reading. It's your homework for uh, for tomorrow. Okay. <laughs> thank, thank you, Mr. T. <laughs> um, we also, I was going to say that um, we both really liked the movie um, Easy Rider. Easy Rider. Ah, uh, yeah. Uh -huh. And I know that you, because Dennis Hopper was a good friend of Wallace. Yes, he was. And your mom's and so and he asked them to be in the in the film right and they're in the scene that I I've seen it actually I think I, I I'm familiar I after I read your book I went back and I was like oh I want to see that scene where they are so they were in that hippie commune scene where yes you, this could be the time there, we could be I, the I was I was there when they were filming it and um, it was somewhere in the Santa Monica Mountains I believe um, and. I'm trying to remember exactly. So yeah, my mom actually has a close-up. There's a scene in the movie where they're in a commune mm -hmm. and the camera pans the face-to-face. -face. Yeah. And my mom is one of those faces as well as George Herms and his wife at the time, Louise Herms. Oh, wow. Uh, my dad refused a close-up. Okay. You could see my dad in the background throwing seeds in the uh, in the background. <laughs> like a landscape. He's somewhere in the weeds and throwing seeds like <laughs> Seeds. <laughs> he seemed like he was kind of shy. Your dad, like, like he didn't 
want to be filmed or like he hated being filmed he hated being he was a control freak of sorts oh. no not of sorts he was a control freak he had total control of his work and his image as much as possible yeah didn't he tell your mom she couldn't keep a journal because of no. his fear no yeah it's true that's terrible i mean to me that's a terrible thing to do to somebody well, this, I mean, this actually comes up to the point of how women are treated uh, at that time. Yeah. But 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 he 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 told her not to keep a journal uh, around. Well, she was very young too, wasn't she? Quite a bit younger, or was she younger? Yes, she was younger. She had me when she was nineteen. That's so young. Wow. Yeah. Very young. It's very strange because when my mom, you know, my as I mentioned, my mom passed. We were only twenty years difference. Wow. So. It's amazing to know someone for so many years, like my entire life. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, it's it's a very strange occurrence. But it, but yeah, she was very young, and she was very, um, she was very passive, but she was very strong in just her presence. Mm-hmm. Um, she wasn't, you know, she wanted to be an artist, and she actually got accepted to uh, um, San Francisco Art School. And but her father said no um, because you're a girl. You don't need to go to college. Oh my what? God, that's awful. So when her father said that to her, this is like in uh, um, we're talking about like 1950, 1951. So when the father when her father said that, she sort of shut herself off, mm. becoming an artist. And it's kind of drag because at the time Clifford still. Um, Corn, like all these great artists were teaching at that school. Mm-hmm. You know, God knows what would happen if my mom went to uh, to art school, you know. But so that got cut off, totally cut off, uh, which is not totally, which was very typical at that time. So what she did was she married into an artistic world. She, you know, by meeting my dad, mm-hmm. she could live sort of the artistic world and get away from the um, sort of the straight world. No, did she? do art at all she did some art she like did. she did drawings and stuff like that but she yeah. was encouraged not to do art by who uh well definitely by her her father but also uh walls in a way because he probably didn't want competition you know, competition or huh. he was very happy my mom being just my mom and you know and and, and not and not being a working artist Oh, that's kind of uh, sad in a way because. Oh, it is sad. One of the things. Talking about the complexities of of, of life, then. I greatly admired my father as an artist and as a person. He was a great gentleman. He's very. He was a great person. Yeah. Fact. He's a man. He is a man of his generation of of that time. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you, you, you can't. It's impossible to. To, um, to separate yourself from that, from your time period or, right. or the, or the morals of that time. Mm-hmm. Now you have a luxury. Yeah. I mean, now I'm 67 years old and now I realize, Oh, well, geez, this is that, that's not so great. Is it? What? Uh, just to how, how, you know, my mom was treated or how oh, yeah, was treated I know. At, at the time. But it's a different time. You know, like you say, you can't apply the morals of now to then. No, and I'm not a moralistic person in the first place. I'm not really, you know, I don't have issues with that. It just means people are very complex who live in very complex times and they have their own ways of dealing with it. Yeah. 
So my mom's way of getting back was really through joining through the, the you know the bohemian world with both feet and, and mm-hmm. jumping into that world and and she did so you know and it was a you know it's a very interesting world and a very interesting life she had. I'm sure awesome. I would have really. I mean, I don't know. Sometimes it seems like I would have really liked your parents, but of course, I don't know. Um, you would. You I, know I why? think I would have. They're very charismatic. My dad yeah. was strong. Was very charismatic, and rarely have I ever met anybody who I know who met him or in his presence mm-hmm. were, was very much drawn into him. Well, I think I would have. I mean, it's hard to say what I would have done if I had been a woman, you know, at that time period. I mean, if I had been around at that during that time period, because of course I do art and music and all this stuff. But you know, maybe I would have ended up not being as free to do the things I wanted to do back then. I don't know, but um. I keep thinking your character, you know, because there are there are women artists like Jay DeFeo, Joan Brown, and some others of that time period who were part of the guys because they did they were working artists. Huh. So okay. it depends if you if you're a full fledged artist, mm-hmm. musician, singer, you be treated differently than say from like someone's wife or a girlfriend. Right. Right. I probably would just would have been a wife or girlfriend. No, not necessarily. <laughs> it, 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 no, but, no. If, no you're, I, if, you're, if you're an artist already and you're doing art and stuff, yeah. they will look at you as, a, as, an, as an artist. Right. But I know I do know that I would have I would have liked those guys. And I think, I just, I know it in my gut because I feel like I'm very drawn to the, and that beat generation. I feel like sometimes I feel like I'm displaced. Like, I mean, I'm a child of the 80s. So mm-hmm. it's a very different era. And I, yeah. but I, I've always been drawn to the beats. I love Allen Ginsberg. I love, mm-hmm. you know, McClure. Um, and I, David Meltzer is the only one I've ever met of the beat poets, but I'm, I mean, he's, he's not even, you, you, yeah. you met the best, in my opinion, you met the best one. He is so cool. But I mean, in, in some ways he wasn't even really, he was sort of like the least famous or least well-known of the beats. If you, he, if he's considered a beat, but he's, but he, uh, because he, he was, you know, he wasn't a name that you heard about, like Allen Ginsberg and you know, no, Michael McClure. No, like the three, right? There's, there's Jack Kerouac, William Burroughs, and Allen Ginsberg. Right. Yeah. For a lot of people, that is the beat. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and there's nobody else was in the beat. Nothing else happens. It's, it's just Kerouac, Burroughs, and Ginsberg. And, uh, of course, that's... Well, Gary Snyder, too. Yeah. But, uh... Sure. But there's, but there's, but there's, but there's way. I mean, there's a lot, a lot of people. I mean, oh, I know. Getty, and you look you know. into it, and it's, there's way more. And there's like kind of Patchen, who's sort of in between the forties and the beats. And right. there's, there's a huge tension of of of, of personalities, uh, men and women, who are involved in 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 the beat. Yeah, Joanne Kiger and mm-hmm. Diane Dupree. Yeah, for sure. Um, Anyways, I, it's interesting also to look look at the female perspective, like read some stuff by Joanne Kiger and and De Prima and read their stuff and their interpretation of like how it was for women, you know. And I think I think it is true that there was some um, sort of the that I don't know that they were clued into um, what was going on. Like I, I think Alan took a picture of or there was a picture that Joanne had taken of Alan and Gary Snyder and like Peter 
Alas, you know, Alan's boyfriend. Mm-hmm. And Alan, like, just forgot to mention that Joanne had taken the picture. And she said, who took yeah, She wrote a poem about a it. Like, she wrote a poem <laughs> about it. Like, who took the picture of the bear on the mountain? You know, like. Yeah. And so it, it's interesting because I think there was that sort of, um, maybe a, like a certain insensitivity uh, yeah. that men they just kind of took for granted that, you know, like, Hey guys, you know, like there is this kind of thing going on for women, but the, but the women's rights movement was sort of happening, uh, started happening in the sixties at least, you know? Yeah, no, in the fifties, it wasn't the case really. And pretty much you accept the fate of what, what, what took place. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's an everyday occurrence, you know, this probably never, you know, it, there was even, there was not even a second thought about it. It's just what it was, right? Um, but you know, but it definitely caused more harm than good. I think you know, and uh, well, for sure it did. Mm-hmm. But you know, people like Diana Prima were very strong writers from the very beginning. You know, so, so at the very essence, he had mm-hmm. that down. You know, she, right. she was a she was a published writer poet, so mm-hmm. she cannot be ignored. Right. But I think, you know, as time goes on, I think you're, you're going to hear more about the the, the, the female side of the beat. Mm-hmm. There's going to be more books about it and more attention will, will take place. And and uh, I think it'll be sort of more, you're going to get more characters in the future, more more new names that you not, may not have been aware of at the time, of the time. Cool. I, would, I hope so. Yeah. Yeah, I think, um, that, I think so for sure. Um. So you, so going back to, I think we started this because, because Easy Rider, your parents were an Easy Rider. Mm-hmm. And were you in the movie? You were. Ah, I, even better yet, I refused to be in the movie. Oh, wow. Your first... I turned down Easy Rider. Oh, wow. You turned down Easy Rider. That's, uh, that's impressive. I know. I was a child. <laughs> I was 12, 13 years old. And I said, nope, I'm not going to do Easy Rider. <laughs> I'll tell you what happened. I, I, I hung out with my I hung out with everybody at the studio BZ Rider. Yeah. And my dad, you know, my parents were extras. And I just was, I was totally involved with the catering table. <laughs> That's understandable. What were you? There's like donuts, there's candy, there was like nuts, there's like all, everything. And I thought, the, the movie world's great. I mean, you know, you get like all this food and you sit there and eat all day if you want. <laughs> so I was very happy being there. Ooh. And then, and then, like I see, even my parents, they're not doing anything. They're just told to stand there and you will shoot them, and that's it. So Dennis came up to me, and he said, um, would you like to be in in the movie? And I said, yes, thinking, great, another day where I can hang out at the catering table. <laughs> and once in a while, he'll call me and, and photograph me, and that's it. You know, I go back to the catering table until t- 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 the end of the day. And I said, yes, of course. So he took a script and he tore a page off the script. He says, memorize these lines. Oh, no. And I went, what? I went, and he handed me the script and he, he walked away. And I think what I had to do was run up to Peter Fonda when he appears at the, <laughs> when, he, when when we take the motorcycles and they appear in the at, in the uh, commune, yeah. I had to run up to one of them and say, welcome, welcome, something like that. <laughs> so I could not remember welcome, welcome. I was like panic stricken. I could not. <laughs> Like I had to act, I had to show emotion, I had to, you know, that was totally a foreign talent that I don't have. And you were Although probably, I did movies, I was in Andy Warhol's 
uh, movie. Oh, wow. I did act it in a way. How old were you when you were like, this? When you were um, the catering at the catering table, you were probably what six? Or? I was like twelve or thirteen. Oh, twelve or maybe? thirteen. Okay, but then when yeah. you were in Andy Warhol's film, how old were you then? I was like seven or eight. Oh wow, you were in an Andy Warhol film at seven or eight. Yeah, it was a Tarzan movie. It was called Tarzan and Jane Regain, sort of. Oh wow! And my dad was in it, and Taylor Mead, mm-hmm. who was a, 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 a um, underground film legend actor. Uh, was uh, played Tarzan. He's super skinny, mm-hmm. not a muscle in his body. <laughs> we played Tarzan, <laughs> and it's got some of the scenes in our house in Beverly Glen. Oh wow! I want to see this movie. Where is it? Can I? The, yeah, it's hard to see. It, the Whitney Museum has a print of it, and I think you have to be either uh, a writer or a scholar, and maybe you could do it. You could say I have a podcast, and you know. Can can I see the movie? I'm not sure. I'm not sure what the procedure is, say true. But it's not distributed. I no, can say I interviewed one of the actors right in that movie. I, I could say Tarzan that Tarzan and Jane regained sort of. Yeah, we could we could say that we had we had one of the actors, the star actors yes, of the movie on our podcast. Of, uh, the actor <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> <laughs> what, now, what was your role in this movie? Boy, boy. Tarzan. you were boy. See, that was a really important role, I'm sure. Oh, very important. So what did, what did you do in this movie as boy? I just stood there and, and, he, and people filmed me, and that's all, that's all I remember. I remember that whole day perfectly well. Uh-huh. No memory of Warhol himself. Oh, wow. How was the catering? The, uh, the catering was not as good, Teichu, because it was our house. <laughs> <laughs> there was no catering. <laughs> Art. Oh, that's no right. No catering in the Warhol world. <laughs> oh, we heard about the, uh, we read about the uh, egg sandwiches. Wallace is yeah, famous. Are you, are you eating good these days? Uh, I'm, veg- I'm borderline vegan, vegetarian. Hey, sorry. Oh. Welcome to the club. Yeah, I've been, I've been, I've been in that, in that form of eating habits since, uh, maybe for like 10 years now. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, mm-hmm. we, we do too. We, we, um. In fact, anytime we have a, if you were here locally, we'd have you over. It's because kind of our tradition where anybody local who's on our mm-hmm. podcast, we have them over for a, a vegetarian oh. vegetarian meal. We we cooked a, our the last poet we had, we made him our our vegetarian lasagna. Oh, it's so good with oh, cashew cheese. I, I was hoping for the garlic spaghetti. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I think the rambling jack the, <laughs> the rambling jack special. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. So anyway, I okay. So I turned down the wall. I couldn't do the. I couldn't do the uh, Easy Rider. Yeah, I just couldn't do it. So I, <laughs> I told my parents the next morning that I said I'm not going to do this. I'm, I'm like I can't do it. And he said okay. So they told Dennis this, and Dennis said okay. And he didn't do the whole scene. He didn't. He just tore that page up like it didn't exist. Well, that's that's pretty. Uh pretty cool to have have been like yeah you know i was offered to roll an easy rider but i had to turn them down yeah i turned it down um and then so but you were in an andy warhol film and was that was that the the end of your film career no no no, no. it went on oh, i did wow. um i did a series of films with the with a filmmaker named of Rila Eckstein. oh wow she's great she's sort of a combination of john waters and Fellini, but living in the San Fernando Valley. Whoops. She's a strong San Fernando Valley 
personality and the character that that with Fellini and John Water touches. Okay, you got to understand that I don't know this area, but okay, this would make more sense to Justin because so the valley is very strong culture in Los Angeles. It's very um, how would I describe it? How would you describe valley culture? They say Barney's. They say what? They call them Barney's. I never heard that term. Is that a nickname for valley people? Valley people, yeah. The LA people say that the people in the valley are Barney's. <laughs> but is this I like the? That. That's good. Is this like the Frank Zappa valley girl type? You yes. Know, okay. Exactly. Okay. Like I'm a valley girl. I'm yeah. A, like oh my god. Okay. Okay. Oh now god. I get an idea. That, that was a Fellini, John Waters aesthetic. And Rila Mc is a really good filmmaker. She's she made some excellent films. They're all short films. And you're in but them. I'm in a lot of her films. Hmm. And uh, my famous co-star is usually Gina Shock of the Go Go's. Oh, oh no uh, way! We love the Go Go's. Yeah. They're a big influence of mine, actually. Or well, Justin's oh, too. Oh yeah, but yeah. Like... Gina and me were we we did you know these films for her. Wow, cool. Yeah, I, I like that was the first record I ever owned was a Go Go's record when I was like eight or not you know seven that was like the first record i my uh my teenage aunt gave me a copy of that nice record and i was like that that was it i was like i gotta be a rock star someday yes, because of them and still this could be your goal <laughs> i know it is actually good so we'll see we will see i'm, I'm working sure on happen. it <laughs> Anyways, uh, cool. So you were in these movies with the Go Go Girl. I wait. I called her the Go Go Girls. The Go Go Girl. Yeah, you know. She makes the goes go go. <laughs> the drummer. Oh, she makes the goes go go. Yeah, that's in my opinion. Yeah, because she's a drummer. She's a great drummer. Yeah. Oh yeah, I bet. She's got the beat. She's got, she the, got the beat. beat yeah. She's got that beat. Um. So where can we, are these movies or films available? Ah, uh, that's a good question. You know, um, I'm, a, I'm an interesting actor because none of my films are available. <laughs> 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 that's funny. I'm one of the great actors of the 20th century, but not one film. Is um, actually, I think maybe YouTube may have it. Look under Rila Eckstein. Okay. And the movie I made was called The Room. Uh, I'm thinking of the other title, The Room, and uh, and my wife Luna Mano, she did the she did the set for these films, so they're very very good. Oh, cool! Yeah, because she's an artist. She's an artist. She's Luna, great. She's a um experimental artist. What does she do? She's she, she she her main theme in her artwork is clothing. Okay, interesting. So another connection to the fashion style is that, like, aware. in a way, and she also has a, she's also a musician. She has a band. Oh, cool! What's her band? The band's called The Sewing Sisters. Oh, nice. The Sewing Sisters. The Sewing Sisters. And every song is about making clothes. Wow. Sewing clothes. But beyond that, the music, the sounds are all made from the sewing machine. No oh my gosh, that's so cool. That's wild. So it's going to be noise and voice. Interesting. And so, and her painting, she has sculptures. She makes clothing sculptures as well, uh, wearable sculptures. Okay. So has an obsession with uh, dirty white collars. Oh, oh, wow. 
because the dirty white collar is, 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 is symbolic of the working class or the, or the, you know, of men going to work. And one thing they have to hide is the dirt right. you know, on the white collar. Interesting. Right? right? So it's usually the wives who have to bleach, take the, the, strain, the stain out of the, out of the, out of the white collar. So it's all, and it's like part, you know, this is part of the, in, you know, the industry, the, uh, the industrial revolution, you know, when, when, when factories start happening and then in the whole sort of white collar world happened. So men will toll and sweat for their work and it will show up on their clothing. So Luna has a collection of dirty white collars actually that she got from used, um, clothing stores as well. People give them to her and they're all sorts. They're like, they're like shirts from Sears to, you know, Comes good song, you know. Uh, and so she has a high, a, a wide range of dirty white collar shirts. Wow. And with those white collar shirts, she makes sculptures out of them, objects out of them, and even like a, a, a formal wedding dress out of them. But oh, all wow. made of dirty white collar. Interesting. Well, I'm sure you're. That's interesting that you married such an experimental artist, and your father was this yeah. unusual experimental artist who you know did a lot of. Yeah, it was no accident. I mean, it, right. it was meant to be. Yeah, and so it seems like, yeah, for sure, you know, Wallace probably would have related and gotten along with, with your, if he'd, if he'd known her, you know. I, the one thing I regret that they never met, I, yeah. they would have got along. Yeah, because he had, I mean, his work was very, uh, you know, he, I think at one point, uh, Justin read that his, his medium was the, the what Xerox machine you said or what? yeah oh the Verifax. So he mm -hmm. did a lot of his stuff. He made a lot of these collages and yeah, the Verifax, um, which doesn't exist anymore, was a copy machine that used a wet process. It's very much like a photographic um, technique of making like office copies, memo copies, mm -hmm. and it was it was used basically for offices who need a copy machine. Okay. And it slowly it died out. It was actually owned by Kodak, and okay. it died out because of the wet process, the chemical process. It right. was just too labor intensive for like an office worker to deal with it. So you uh -huh. know, the, so technology took over, and it became more simpler and more easier and, and stuff. But my dad was given as a gift a Verifax machine at the at the height of 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 its office use. Mm -hmm. And um, he messed around with the chemicals, and he started making artwork out of using this machine. And mm -hmm. that's where he got the image of a of a hand holding a AM FM transistor radio, where he has images placed mm -hmm. in 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 the radio. And that's sort of like my, my dad's most famous um, visual motif, I, mm -hmm. I think. Mm -hmm. And the Verifax collage is the is a photogenic photo process collage making art, you know, you know, for the for the for the for the for that for the machine. Okay. Now, would he develop his own? So, because I've I've done some photography as well. I used to uh, work in a dark room and develop my own pictures. Did he do anything like? Did he have a dark room as well? Kind of. Develop? Yeah. Okay. Because he did photography as well, yeah, so he had his own dark that. room as well. And, uh, everywhere he lived, he had a Did he have it in the space. bathroom? 
he did it first, and then he and he, then he had like a, a in the studio he had sort of like we had like access to water. Okay, and he could do it in his in his studio. But usually, when we lived at home, it'd be in the bathroom. Right, that's me too. I had I had my own dark room in my bathroom. It's kind of perfect because you had. Well, I set it up like in this in the bathtub or something. Yeah, you're yeah, but, you're a master of all mediums. I know. Well. well, you know, well, not really. I'm not a master. I feel like I'm a I'm a dabbler in all mediums. You're a, you're that you're a great dabbler of all oh, mediums. Thanks. Yeah, I'm a I'm a I'm a dabbler. But it, <laughs> um, I was gonna say, oh, that's right, and that reminds me of the fact that one of the most amazing stories in the whole book was that I you must have it must be a very clear and sort of awful memory for you is is when your house just like got washed away by a mudslide yeah yeah, yeah. oh my it was gosh. very dramatic well and you guys the, the miracle is that i guess Shirley heard a noise outside but you you should tell the story but like the fact that you guys escaped are you yeah you, well it's escape it's, it's um, what it was was it was raining very very hard that day that that afternoon and we had a house like really a cabin I mean, it was like a, a shack yeah on stilts facing you know in beverly Wind, which is a canyon area between, right uh, sunset strip i mean sunset boulevard and the valley yeah and it was raining really hard it was just raining 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 and it was it was two days after christmas and I, I, it was just me and my mom in the house, and we heard like rocks in the back of the house falling or making a noise. Wow! So my mom said, well, "This sounds too. This sounds kind of strange." So she felt nervous about being in the house. So she took me by my hand, and we walked out of the house to see what it was. You know, basically see what what, what the situation is. Mm-hmm. And we're not even dressed for the rain. We just walked out. Yeah. Raining. And as we got to the pathway that leads to the house, as we were going to the pathway, the house just trumbled down. Like tons of mud crashed oh into the house. Wow. And made the house. There's no structure. This became The whole house became splinters. Oh, my goodness. It just slid all the way down the hill. Was everything like just splinters. No structure, no foundation. Just gone. Oh, and that. we're just standing there <laughs> in your pajamas or something. Yeah, almost. We were wow. driving in the afternoon, so I was wearing like a sweatshirt and pants or whatever. And then, and you know, that's it. That's all we had. What we were wearing. Everything oh my else was goodness! Gone. And Wallace wasn't there. He wasn't there. He was getting a passport to go on a trip, and he'd never traveled. Wow. He was going to go take out a passport to go to New York. London and Paris for the weekend. Oh wow. That's not even possible. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. In his mind he's gonna spend some hours in New York, spend some hours in London and some hours in Paris and then go back home. I mean this yeah, is like who the writes stuff this who stuff? writes the it does. It seems like this is like that's one of the the things about your book is like this amazing these amazing stories that just seem like wait a minute like is this real this this actually happened and it's just so interesting and unusual and I mean 
to watch your house, and you must have been, you were quite young, right? When you. Yeah, it was, I was like sixty five. So I was like uh, 10, right? ten. Yeah, I was, the... I was. I was eleven years old. Okay, and then to like, and then did you guys were you able to like get any of your stuff back? Wallace's no paintings or anything? No. Wow. Art, everything gone. So everything. The got only good thing buried. is that my dad had a studio, a small studio across the street. Uh... So all the artwork of his artwork was, was saved mm, that all good. like other people's artwork and photographs and, and your stuff that you books, stuff, toys, my head yeah. or records. I had that's all hard. Have, all gone. I, mean, I imagine that must be like an early trauma for like, Oh, it, I mean, it was a huge trauma. And like to and just, to this day, I still remember every Christmas present that I received that Christmas that I lost. I bet. Wow. And it was, yeah, it was very incredibly traumatic. Um, it, was, it, was my, it, was, it was my first, like, major tragedy. Well, and also, like, what what always occurs to me, being a photographer and also somebody who loves photographs, is, like, what about the photographs? That would be the first thing, like, I would take out. If, if we had a fire here, because, you know, that's the thing here, especially yeah. we're, in, we're in an area where we get a lot of fires, and so... You know, it's a real fear here. Like, what what happens if you know there's a fire and we have to leave the house? I would grab yeah. the journals and the photographs. Yeah. But so you guys must have lost some of that stuff, no? Yeah, we lost everything. Photos and ah, that's hard. It was really hard, and it, yeah, it's still hard because sort of um, I'm going through my mom's stuff now, and it sort of reminds me of the stuff that we lost already. Yeah, know, I bet. Sort of, uh, Wow. Yeah, it's difficult. Yeah, it was really difficult. I mean, we were fortunate that we could stay in my dad's studio across mm-hmm. the street. Yeah. Until we moved to Topanga. But, you know, it was, yeah, it was a definitely, it was a very, it was, yeah, it was amazing. It's incredible to have that experience, but <clears throat> it was such a major loss. Yeah. So I'm, I'm sure you could relate to people because I've heard of people like, oh, yeah, we just lost our whole house to fire because that happens here in California. Yeah. You know, and, um, that's one of the things that I'm terribly, I'm terrified of is. Well, you know, living in the canyons, we moved to Topanga Canyon, another damn canyon. And so it's like, <laughs> I was always surrounded by earthquakes, fires, and floods. I know. I yeah. couldn't understand why my parents wanted to live in these places. I hated it. <laughs> well, you know, it's, I mean, that's a, it's a drawback. It's like, it's a trade-off, you know, it's, I mean, you're living in, I mean, because LA is such a cool city in a lot of ways, but there's, there is that, there is the danger, you know, there's the possibility of earthquakes and fires yeah but in your like you i presume where you live and where i used to live yeah like, like the fire situation is like it's awful uh, almost a daily occur occurrence you yeah know, the, the fear or having i can't think i can't count how many, i can't count how many times i've been back i had to leave the house due to a fire situation oh wow yeah yeah, and especially lately, it's been really awful. Like I couldn't in go. In the sixties, we had the Bel Air fire, which went you know into our almost to our our home area. Yeah, it's just traumatic. Wow. Um, and you guys, so you guys, did you end up going to London? I, I think you said like. Yeah, I went on the summer of '67. We, we as a family trip, we all went to we went to London. And you guys, did your parents must have known the Beatles and stuff because they were? I mean, your dad Wallace was on the cover of the Beatles album. He's on. He's on the cover of the Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Right. He's one of the faces behind the Beatles. Did he know and that? He, and he never met the Beatles. Oh, he never did, really? No. But I th- did he know Yoko at all? Because she was uh, also an artist. Ah, well, when he mentioned Yoko, 
knew of my dad, and my dad knew of Yoko, but way before the Beatles. Okay, interesting. Before her, her association with uh, John Lennon. Right. Um, Yoko was part of the Fluxus uh, group in New York. Okay, right. And she sent, actually, a work of art to my dad through the hmm. mail. A little a plastic, um, not plastic, um, yeah, I think a little plexiglass box. Okay. And if you look at it, it had the words mind. And if you turn it over, it said wind. Mind, wind. Interesting. Yeah, so the M would turn to a W. Oh. I don't know, I don't know what happened to that, that work. I don't know where it is now. Did it get buried it was sent in the to mud? My dad, um, from her, because mm-hmm. you know, the, like the male art was a bit was a was a, a, a regular occurrence among artists at that time. Right, I know. Well, you know, so that was a thing. People would just send the art to other artists and people they yeah. respected. Yeah, you know, there there is a Mainer. Speaking of Maine, that Bern Porter did male art. I don't know if you ever heard of him, but anyway, he's a he, Bern Porter. He was uh, he he did oh. the male art thing, like sending uh-huh. art in the mail. Burn Porter, anyway, he's a Mainer. I don't really know that much about him. I just know that he um he lived in the little town in Maine that I lived in briefly. It's called Belfast, Maine. And anyway, I guess oh. he, he did all this. I used to have something that he, it was a collection of, by Burn Porter of, of male art, art that people would send through the mail. And oh, I nice. think, oh. yeah, anyway, I'm sorry. I was trying to just throw no. Maine in there. No, and I, I, don't know, I don't know his work, I don't think. There's, there's a guy named Ray Johnson who's pretty okay. well known for doing male art in the 60s. Yeah. In the 50s. And my dad would do male art as well. But, you know, his work was not like technically, quote unquote, male art. It's actually, you know, actual postcards with that you write to somebody. Right. But it becomes an art object. And he didn't meant it ever to be shown in a gallery or a museum or sold as art. It was just a postcard that's art. Why do you think he was shy about showing his art? Like, like having it's it? It's not shy. I think it basically it's more of the issue. And again, he never talked about this. So I, I'm just giving my, my take on it. Um, I think it was more of a control issue. He, he would have to control the exhibit. Right. He would have to control the announcements. And even the schedule of the show, he probably would have to have a certain amount of control. So if he can't have total 100% control, he was not interested in, in doing a show or showing his work. Hmm. Do you think it was just he, he, he had a very specific aesthetic? Very and, specific. Yeah, aesthetic. and he just wanted it to all be just so. Yeah, and it's been strange. You know, often, sometimes somebody will contact him when he was alive, to do a, show, like a curated show of uh, a theme of some sort. And if he, if he didn't like the theme, he didn't want to be part of the show. It wouldn't matter if like there was a lot of great artists in the show, famous artists. If he didn't like the theme of the show, he, he didn't want to do it. He didn't want to be part of it. And he would write to that curator, please take my art, please do not show my artwork, my art in your show, because I don't like your theme. It was kind of crazy when you think about it because, you know, every artist wants to show their work, right? Or if you're in a group show that has, like, other important artists, of course, you, you want to be part of that show. But my dad was totally off it. He, he did not want to be part of that show. He didn't want to do it. Do you think he was influenced at all by the 
like the lettrist situationist kind of thing? I, you know, no, I don't think he was. I don't think he was really aware. I think the letters became more prominent in America much later. Oh, yeah, in the 60s. I guess that's true. Yeah, I mean, my dad knew, my dad actually knew all the isms that were happening around that time, even in Europe. Yeah. But I don't think the letters were that prominent in uh, in um, in the art circle. What the about 60s the surrealists? In America. But he knew about the surrealists, probably. Huge surrealist fan. He loved it. Yeah, and they were, and in fact, you mentioned the Marcel Duchamp uh, opening that they went to, because he knew... Yeah, I met, I met Marcel Duchamp. That's, that's Duchamp, sorry. And he was friends with him? No, he met him at that opening as well. He did not know, he didn't know him, but he was, a, he was a huge fan of his work. He greatly admired Marcel Duchamp. Yeah, and he did, like, I'm not that... Duchamp did, like, the urinal and the, the gold, yes. you know, uh-huh. the... And, and you said that, yeah, his stuff is. Um, but the surrealists were a little bit more, I think, political than the Dadaists. They were, they were a little more. It became that way. Yeah. Um, the Dadaists were more anarchy, right? And then the bridge between the Dadaists and the surrealists is, I, I, is really one person, Andre Breton. Right, Breton. I know about him. Yeah, and Andre Breton was a poet. Um, Made it more doctrine, the surrealist, more of a doctrine system. He became very involved in left wing politics, uh, even though the left wing didn't really like the surrealist because they're a little crazy. <laughs> but nevertheless, he, he, you know, he's the guy who sort of like Guy Debord. Actually, Guy Debord sort of adopted Andre Breton's methods. I think he did. And Breton yeah. like would would eliminate people from the surrealist movement, like if he, if he doesn't like them. Or, I didn't you know. know that. I knew, yeah, I'm not as familiar, but I, I know that Benjamin Pere was, in, mm-hmm. in, he fought in the Poom so, during the Spanish Civil War, so he said so there was this, you know, there is this connection between, like, left, the left, the anarchists, anarchy, uh-huh. anarchism, anti-capitalism, and some of these art movements at the time, the surrealists and the situationists, and I mean, there's a big connection between the Situationists and Paris, 1968, the Revolution, yes, kind of. There is a connection, absolutely, and yeah. there and there's definitely a, a strong sort of left uh, orientated uh, view of the world through like the Surrealists and the Letterists and the Situationists. Well, and I just and interestingly enough, the Futurists are totally opposite. The Futurists. Yeah, the Italian Futurists. They're totally right wing. Oh wow! I didn't know that. Oh um, yeah, they're they're great. Um, but there were right new were definitely right wing <laughs> prototype Mussolini uh, oh wow uh backers they love war oh wow they they think war was good because it cleans up the soul they thought it was a good aesthetic a good way of cleaning up starting the soul. fresh oh my gosh um, and speed is good because speed is machines and machines are good as the machine age and everything's mechanical and more sexy and and stuff like that it's like it's like right wing viewpoint filtered through a poetic point of view okay interesting i'm not as familiar with the future like who's a futurist i'm trying to think of uh marinetti is the main one he's sort of oh, the okay. andre breton of, of, of that group and he oh, okay. wrote manifestos and poetry he's a good poet he, he, okay. he's a really interesting poet and he's he, he, he him down he's really great but, and there were yeah. dandies <laughs> they all dressed well but, well, but they were avant-garde artists but very right wing i was going to say that i I just, the reason I ask is because Wallace 
it almost seems like he was kind of a anti-capitalist in a way because he, you know, he didn't sell his. Yeah, he was anti-capitalist. And he, he's pretty so, much a libertarian. Uh, if he had to label yeah. him something, it would be like a social libertarian. Oh, okay. Because he was uh, not libertarian in the sense like what we have now. Yeah. Or, or not Ayn Rand libertarian. But he's, but a, he's, more a, of an he's a person that felt yeah. like, you know, like, well, all drugs should be legalized. There should probably be no laws. Right. Uh, you know, you prefer to trade artwork for goods. I'm sure if he, if he had his choice, he would like to trade art for energy, you know, for electricity in the house, you know, stuff like that. Sounds good. <laughs> and that is, that's something very much what he was. He never voted. Uh, he never participated in, in the, in the elections of any sort or mm-hmm. voting, okay. nor did he ever demonstrate it. He, during the Vietnam war, he did donate artwork okay. to raise money for draft resistors and people against the war in Vietnam. But he never actually went on the street and demonstrated for anything. Okay. Wow, interesting. So, um, cool. I guess... Uh, he's very paranoid. I mean, he's very anti-police. He didn't like the police at all. Well, that makes sense, though, at the time, because, you know, pot was illegal, and it kind of had yeah. to... I mean, he, was very par- he was actually kind of paranoid. He always thought there was, like, police agents around, stuff like that. Were there? I mean, I mean, at that well, time, yeah, though, people were. were getting arrested for having marijuana, and of course he had it, so yeah. he had to be a little careful because he was having these parties where people were smoking dope, and, uh, yeah. you know, and then the Rolling Stones would come over with all their hard drugs. <laughs> yeah, like, oh, they did. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, they did, and so, yeah, and that's true. It, 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 it was a concern. At the time of the sixties, very paranoid time. My 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 memory of the sixties is not peace, love, and understanding. It's more of uh, darkness and paranoia. Oh wow! And and yeah, that's it. Peaceful. <laughs> it's paranoia. Peace, love, and paranoia. And, 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 and it, uh, yeah, to me, it's a very has a dark tinge. I think mm. the true hippie feeling that you know the peace, love was probably only like months in that whole. You know, not years. It's just. Yeah, I, I I think what happened is in the hippie movement, you know, the, the originators of the hippies are all good people or, or interesting people, but then you got the runaways from from the Midwest and God knows where who came to Los Angeles, New York, and you know, and sort of became like bad drugs and sort of bad mentally ill people, and mm. sort of you know, it just turned dark. Hmm. Not everybody's ready to know. Uh, well, that you there's there's a sense of nostalgia for sure, and you know the hippie thing did bring out a lot of positive aspects of culture and music and, and so forth. But it had a dark tinge, you know. The, mm. the whole sort of Charles Manson thing is like a perfect example of of, of of that world turning sour. Yeah, I think I wonder if it was partly the psychedelics um, being illegal and being and then having to hide all this stuff and. I mean, because Timothy Leary was in jail, and yet, yeah, and you know, so there was that sort of the the cl- the conflict between there, you know, this tremendous, in a way, this um, culturally liberation, this cultural liberation, these and this change happening, but then also the then the state was cracking down more on people. You know what it is? Yeah, I think that, but also this is gonna be. I'm gonna. I'm a snob. 
I want to say something very snobby. Okay. Uh, but I think there's the exceptional people, you know, the exceptional people who are in the beat movement. Yeah. The exceptional people who are in, in the in sort of the start of the hippie thing. Yeah. And then what makes it a drag is the people who came afterward mm. who are not exceptional. Okay. The sort of... Uh, the straight people the, trying to get curvy. The beatniks, would you call them? Or the post-beat, the... I guess you wouldn't call them beatniks, but... Well, beatniks oh. is a good term. The beatniks is, is, is not a... Is, that is like a media term for, for the beats. And that was by people who hated beats. Okay. Or want to make fun of the beats. Beat right. So a beatnik means somebody who's not a beat, obviously, because a beat would never call themselves a beatnik or even beat. That's right. like media terminology. Right. That's like, especially beatnik is really like TV, mass media. Right. Term for, for, the, for, for people who live an alternative lifestyle. Mm. They're beatniks. And so, so anybody who's drawn to that media, like I want to be a bean Nick, you know, I see, I see Maynard on W W Gray show. That looks like a cool lifestyle, so I'll be a bean Nick. Mm-hmm. And then, but they're not exceptional people. There's basically people running away from either bad home situation or unhappiness, or you know, it, it's 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 unhappiness that draws them to a particular social grouping. Mm. Where originally these people were not happy. You know, Timothy Leary, rightly or wrongly, was not an unhappy person. He's just sort of an exceptional, interesting guy. Very you know? smart. And, yeah, very and, highly intelligent and, person. And I don't even like Timothy Leary, especially, but he's still an exceptionally interesting person. Mm-hmm. So the difference between that and like regular people who came on the scene and the media, uh, it sort of destroys the movement, and then the police sort of destroys the movement as well as, as the hippie thing became more political. Mm-hmm. And you know, and and then a lot of Aussies, like the diggers from the hippie movement, you know, that they were interesting political anarchists of sorts. Yeah, in the San Francisco area. So, you know, there's like pros and cons of all this, but overall, it became um, sort of controlled by the media in a sense, and therefore. Anybody who came to San Francisco with flowers in their hair or Los Angeles or New York, you know, after the fact, it's not the same thing. And they usually didn't bring anything creative with them. They became part of the spectacle, so to speak. Yeah, The spectacle of... of, They become part of the spectacle. You know, hippie culture or something. Um, and, get, and I think every movement really only has like a really great one year or two years if it's like a movement thing. After that, it just becomes product. It's like the punk. Yeah. I mean, the punk thing was like so strong, and, you know, of all sorts, and then it became not strong. It just became a, a spectacle. Well, I think it's also the the individually individuality versus herd mentality. You know, it's like. I mean, yeah. because, you know, what happens is there's this image, and at first it's original. Some, you know, these are original yeah. people who are unique, and they're coming up with these original ideas, and it's like, oh, these are Allen Ginsberg, and these guys are, are doing this stuff that's really never been done, and it's, 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 it's new, and it's avant-garde. Uh, but that, this is interesting. It's avant-garde. You bring something very interesting, like the beats. Okay, we think of Kerouac, we think of Burroughs, and we think of Ginsberg, right? Yeah. They knew each other. Yeah. But beyond that, and they helped each other, they worked with each other, you know, occasionally. But really, those three and more are like totally individual uh, writers. Right. 
Ginsburg's work is nothing like Burl's work. Burl's right. work is nothing like Ginsburg. Right. And Kerouac is nothing like Burl's or Ginsburg. Right. They're, they're, they're just totally three separate artists. Yes. Writers. Who are somehow merged into one, like, grouping for some Well, because of Kerouac's books where he talked about, I mean, they were characters in Kerouac's books. Exactly. So it's, I mean, Kerouac really kind of brought the whole beat thing because he was writing about them. He was writing about he, these he, he made wacky like a social characters. Right. characters in his story. Right. So at the end of the day, when you have a Kerouac book, a William Burroughs book, and an Allen book. They're so different. They're different. They're they're totally different. They're not. Yeah. They're not. They're not the same. It's not the same type of literature. It's not. Sometimes they're surreals, and you go, okay, they're like parades sort are of like you know, like Desno's a little bit, or you know, you know, you something you you see a common strain like in the surrealist, right? But 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 the beat stuff really, it's like different. You know, I mean, what is beat literature? I mean, it's it's it's. I mean, Burroughs is Burroughs. Ginsburg is Ginsburg. Kind of correct. It's not. It's not. A, it's not even the same style in my mind. Yeah, but I mean, it's 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 more of a, like a cultural thing. The fact that they were of this era and they were doing things that were it's, it's a cultural grouping. You know, that's cultural what it is. grouping. It's a, it's a, it's a, they, they share a look. They share a certain amount, a certain age bracket. Yeah, and a certain taste in in life. But beyond that, their work is very much different. Well, they were they were doing things that were that were kind of that were cutting edge. I mean, you know, well, uh, yeah. I think, I mean, you know, certainly Allen Ginsberg and there was that, um, that trial because Howell was banned. Yeah. And I think that actually that trial might've been part of what helped get them so famous because, you know, this yes, is it like, was. oh, is this forbidden text? We have a and, forbidden text, fame comes afterwards. Right. <laughs> you, hopefully, <laughs> yeah, like, and for and Alan's case, he was. I think Alan is a very much a very organized personality. He knew how to do things. He was a good PR person, and he liked fame. He didn't. He didn't shy away from it. He was sort of welcoming. No, no, no. He loved it. He was. Um, he did it well. He wore it well. Fame. He was. He was very famous when I met him. When I knew him, uh, especially in the sixties, he was very famous. And he was in London when we were in London, and you know, I, I, you could walk up in a crowd and hear somebody mention his name, just talking about him. Oh wow! Not because they know, I mean, they knew who he was, you know. And so, and he catered to that. He knew how to, like Kerouac, could not deal with stuff like that at all. Oh no, he was afraid, right? He was afraid. He was shy. He was not, you know, he's just not. That's not him. Yeah. And and Burles was just a, a you know a weirdo. Sorry. <laughs> It was very unusual. He was sort of like a cat man. You know how they have cat ladies, but he was a cat man. Yeah. I think he had all he these cats. He was a cats. cat man. He, he literally he was the cat man. He loves <laughs> cats and he is a cat man. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. Um, and he liked guns, right? Didn't Burrow like have paint guns? Like he did art with shooting guns. He loved guns. I know. He shot his wife. Oh my God. I know. That's awful. I shouldn't laugh. He killed his wife. That's okay, awful. This is a perfect example. Of women That's so awful. I'm sorry. <laughs> he killed I'm, his woman. I should he killed not his wife. laugh. It's just, it's, it's like so absurd, you know. That and, he, and, he, and basically, he got away with it. Right. I mean, it, it, it should be like manslaughter, if nothing else. I mean, it was, you know, he, he's playing William Tell with wow. his wife. I don't, what? I don't know how you would categorize that. And due to his connections, because he had some money in the family, he basically got off. 
Well, we are in a very, very much a gun culture in this country. And he, to the day he died, he was into guns. I mean, for me, I would think maybe I should not be playing with guns. I know it's weird, right? Yeah, maybe, maybe logically it's not a good idea. Maybe it's not a good route to go on. <laughs> he, he totally went, went, he totally was gun crazy all throughout his life. I know, it's odd. It's interesting. Lou Welsh liked guns, too. He's, he's no, really... no, it's like a monster thing. You know, they all, like, yeah. you can't presume the beats having flowers in the hair. And well, Allen Ginsberg didn't. Like, I don't think Allen Ginsberg liked guns. He was a peacenik. Kerouac was pro-Vietnam War. Really? Well, yeah, he was a little weird, like, politically. I think well, he was he, Catholic. He was a good he, example of his generation. He was, to me, Kerouac is very conservative. Yeah, he was. I think, in fact, he had conflict with Alan because he would, like, like, I think he, like, was a little bit anti-Semitic. Like, I think he expressed yeah, some anti-Semitism towards Catholic, Alan, who, was, of course, was Jewish. Was, you know. He was. I mean, I... This is not a, you know, like, he's a man of his time and place, like my yeah, dad is. Right. And indeed, definitely, he was not a hippie. He hated hippies. <laughs> I know, so it's weird because, you know, here he was sort of like the the person who came up with the, the beat idea, like the beatitudes. Right. And then Alan went and took that, like, we are the beats. Yeah, we're going to make this movement. And, and Alan, yeah. Alan sort of was the, the, um, porch uh bearer of the yeah. that and but alan seems like such a sweetheart i mean he you guys you were he was. friends with with alan i like him a lot i remember yeah. him as a child and teenager and I, he was a sweetheart yeah just a, a really uh a giving loving character mm -hmm. um, and i met girls once in london Met, I met him once. I wrote about it in the book. Mm -hmm. we, we were, we were, we went to a reading. I think it was an Allen reading, <clears throat> and it was late at night. And London like closes off early, like there's nothing after a certain hour. And a, a, a London taxi came by. My father got it, and across the street was this, this gentleman who looked like a banker, had a little derby hat and a three-piece suit. Mm -hmm. And my dad felt bad because he knew he this guy wanted the, the taxi as well. And it probably won't be another taxi for who God knows how long. So my dad said, "We'll share a taxi." It was we, you know, he called him over, "Come over, we'll we'll share the ride." Mm -hmm. And you know, I came in, and 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 my dad introduced himself, and he said, "Yes, I, I'm William Burroughs." Oh, wow. <laughs> and, and he, what happened? My dad mentioned the the, the address that he's going to. Yeah. And Burroughs knew the address right away because he's been there. Right. Okay. And that's and that broke the ice of them start talking and stuff like that. And ironically enough, my dad published an excerpt of Naked Lunch and Femina in like in the fifties. Oh, okay. Yeah. So he knew who my dad was. I mean, he, I I don't think he knew who he was when he got into the car with him. But right. You know, this all came out in, in the in the taxi drive. That's interesting. That's funny. It's kind of a perfect place to meet William Burroughs in the text. Yeah. He, he was just totally a great, like, banker <laughs> guy. Yeah. I could see that. That's No way would I have guessed that this guy killed his wife. <laughs> I know. He was so, like, kind of gentle and soft, but he seemed like he was kind of quiet in a way. And Very Midwestern. Yeah. 
I, I, he had like a very, I remember he had like a very, you know, the famous Burroughs voice that we all know. And Right. He almost reminds me of, he almost reminds me of Roscoe Holcomb, you know, that banjo player, the, the high lonesome blues. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a, it's very, yeah, it is very, um, that country, you know. Yeah. Arkansas. I don't know. Just like, like back porch music, America. Yeah. Well, Carlos yeah. came from, he's, he was born in St. Louis, Missouri. Okay. So I think he has a very strong St. Louis thing. I don't know. I went to St. Louis just a couple of years ago before the virus. Yeah. yeah. And um, I was really impressed because that's where Tennessee Williams was born. Earl was born. I think H.P. Lovecraft was born there as well. Oh, yep. Familiar with him. Yeah, so sort of interesting people from, from St. Louis. And Miles Davis. Oh, yeah. So what did you? What was your impression? Uh, I was there for two days. I was there for a reading. They, they, they flew me out for a reading. I had mm-hmm. a great time. had a great reading. And I thought it stays on my mind because it's such a, um, you, you know, I only been to like here in Los Angeles, been to New York, been to San Francisco. I've never been anywhere like in between Los Angeles and New York mm-hmm. until very recently. Hmm. I spent, I went to Detroit twice. Okay. And Detroit is remarkable. It's a really interesting city. And St. Louis I found really interesting as well. I like, hmm. them, I like both cities. I wouldn't want to live there, mind you, yeah. but. The visit. It was, it was an interesting trip. I remember reading uh, about, well, you know, because of course I've read on the road, and mm-hmm. you kind of get a picture of of the a little bit of Burroughs' world in the in the book where when they go and visit him, and it's kind of it almost seems like it's like these fields of uh, just. I don't know if it's swampy land or what. I can't remember, but it. But I remember him painting the picture of this kind of way out in the sticks. You know, uh-huh. like feeling like it's like the mosquitoes, and there's just. Um. So he was really a kind of a backcountry. You know, he was living in rural America. Yeah. Know, well, he, he ended up, up in Kansas, right? To, to live in Kansas. Yeah. Oh, that's, so, yeah, that's, that's where that's they his, were. That's his environment. Yeah. So he kind of, um, yeah, it seems you can tell. You know, I, I feel like you, what you're talking about, like it, you can you can kind of sense that from his character. Yeah. I mean, he had his cap, he had his gun, he had his heroin, and he walked <laughs> on, and he was perfectly fine. <laughs> <laughs> and he had, he had, apparently he had an orgone, a Reich, Orgone yeah. box. Yeah, he was into that. Yeah, so you could, you know, we're all set. You got your guns, your cats, and your Reich Orgone yeah. box. Yeah, as a teenager, I was totally in love with his work. I read all his books. I have all his books. I was really into him. I thought he was like the most intriguing person, well, the he's personality, certainly... and I really, I really enjoyed him. But as he's... I got older, I start thinking, you know, it's more like a young person thing for me. I, I sort of grew out. I grew out of him. Yeah, I think I did too. Like, cause I, at first, I was like intrigued by the sex and the shocking, you know, the, the, this very raw sex stuff in his yeah. naked lunch, and and you know, so so as a teenager, as a young, I don't think I read it that young. I I probably read Naked Lunch when I was, I might have glanced at it in high school, but I think it was more college that I finally uh-huh. got into it. But uh, but now I go, you know, just like what what, you know, this is 
um, I don't know. I, I just don't quite have, it's very unusual stuff. It's like, and I think he worked a lot by cutting up words and like the, yeah but actually he didn't invent word collage invented it, but who invented it i think christian Tazara, the daughter oh right yeah he cut up words he cut up uh, poems or cut up things from a newspaper and put it in a hat and mix it up and then make a poem out of it yeah make a poem out of it uh and then burles gets the credit and then you know and the bet i you know this is something the daughter did you know Decades before William Burroughs did that. Right. Now it's important to figure out, you know, that that's, he was certainly influenced by those guys for sure. Yeah. But I mean, absolutely. you know, that I think Allen Ginsberg, the, those guys were practicing that, that word collage thing. Yeah. They had this whole mm -hmm. idea of like, also, um, uh, first thought, best thought, like automatic writing type stuff. Yeah, so they 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 they, they got a lot of from the surrealists. Mm, right, I I know for sure. Yeah, it's important to to draw that connection. Absolutely. See, and I really I think it's always important to look at the influences of. I don't know when you're trying to you know when you are trying to understand a, an author or an artist yeah. or a. You know that you learn a lot about them by by looking at their influences. Where where what are the roots of their yeah. inspiration of their um, creative process? So, mm -hmm. and I think that you offer a lot of that um, in your book. Well, right? yeah, you know the thing is, you don't come from nowhere. You come from somewhere. Everybody does, and I think my technique or my interest is always bringing my culture with me, rightly mm -hmm. or wrongly. You know so. You know, all my writings I do always have a lot of cultural references mm -hmm. of, of my life or, or what's around me. So it's important to expose that. You know, every artist I like, I, I'm i not really into like a singular artist. I like an artist who has a lot of culture around them. Mm -hmm. So I can pick up other, you know, other things. You know, one of the reasons I like Boris Beyond, the guy I publish, is that he's sort of the focal point. Uh, a lot of things are happening about the writers and musicians. So, like, oh, this person's a friend of Beyond. It might be interesting to read. And I read, and it's like, wow, this is great. And then you go on and on and on. Mm. Same with the music. You know, you you learned um, you learn a whole new world through one particular person. Like, sometimes a, a writer or an artist is a gateway to something else. It's a gateway, for a, sure. a portal hole to go somewhere else. Yeah, for and sure. And to me, that is the best gift. An artist can give as well as the best way of uh, enjoying a culture. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, I I met. Well, I wouldn't know about Ta uh, Wallace Berman if it hadn't mm -hmm. been for David Meltzer. Who I mean, yeah. I, you know, I might have eventually come up, but I feel like you know, I I met. So of course, I think Allen Ginsberg was the first, you know, of the beats that I. In high school, I was reading Allen Ginsberg yeah. poems. Then I, you know, then I came upon, oh, well, here's a book about the beats by yeah. David Meltzer. So then I read, and then I found uh, Wallace Berman and Wallace Berman's book, and then Tosh Berman, who, <laughs> here, Most here you are. Figure and, of the and, you know, and, and, and all these musicians that I'm really interested in checking out now because it's, um, I'm not as well versed in music as Justin is and, and surely you are. Um, 
you're you guys are way more uh knowledgeable oh you knew uh, the fugs oh i love the fugs i know oh, there it's, you go i will i actually and i'm friends with i'm friends with tuli's daughter who Oh really? Who okay, lives so in you're Maine? Like a yeah. Well, well, I'm. I, <laughs> I well, she she lives in Portland, Maine. You know, I'm from Maine, and she's about my age. And we, um, so we. But I, but I. The funny thing is, is that I knew about Tuli Cooperberg, and I knew about the Fugs before I met uh, his daughter Samara. Um, right. But yeah, she's very nice. And anyway, um, I wish I'd met Tuli though, because I. Uh, did your was your dad friends with Tuli? Did he know? Uh, no, but okay. they knew. Uh, he knows of him. Yeah. He knew of him. Okay. My dad had like the most interesting music. So, like he he had the Fugs records. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he had he had the Fugs. He had the you know the Belt Underground record. <laughs> yeah. He had all those sort of like they had he had the Ken B Fart um, um, record. Oh, right. He had all these like weird records, in my opinion. I'm thinking, what is this weird music? You know, <laughs> being a teenager, like into the monkeys or whatever, and then you know having some guy singing about heroin. I mean, what in the hell is this? <laughs> <laughs> and the bugs, the same thing. So mm-hmm. I was like, it was really weird music because my dad was like really into like to me, like listening to weird stuff. Like, yeah. wow, wow. You said you know most parents listen to normal stuff, but he listened to weird stuff in my opinion. <laughs> Yeah, that's funny. What about Frank? It took me years for me to, uh, or, you know, after the fact. Then I got into, you know, that type of music and those people, of course. But at the time, I was like, what is he listening to? That's funny. Um, you know, like, what is this noise that he's listening to? <laughs> that's funny. Did you, did you, what about Frank Zappa? I never liked him. I no. never, you know, I can't get into his, I, I don't like his humor. I don't like, I don't, I just never liked him. Oh. I kind of like his, I know he's talented, you know, he definitely has the skills and you know, all that type of stuff. Yeah. And he's important. He's a very important figure in music and culture, and there's no denying that. But personally, I have a hard time sitting through any of his recordings or records or, you know, he's seen, you know, and it, again, like his personality is so in your face. It's always like sort of gross humor. You know, mm-hmm. I, I don't, there's no subtleties in anything he did. It's all sort of like writing your face type of commentary. And it seemed kind of moralistic. I hated the moral aspect of his work. Well, wasn't he, he was kind of anti-drugs, but he smoked, which seems like a real weird, I'm allergic to cigarettes, so I probably would have had a problem. But he was, uh, he never did any drugs. Um, yeah, I, I heard that he's a, 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 not a narcotic person whatsoever. Um, it, but, you know, it's it's not that much. It's much more as him being, he sort of, he preaches a lot. Oh, you mean politically? He nags. He's like, like nags po- politically? about stuff. Like about what? Yeah. No, no, no. We're only in it for the money. You know, that type oh, of right, crap, yeah. of the humor. And then later the yellow snow thing. And this, it just becomes like, you know, ballet girl. It just but, becomes sort of like lectures about culture and society. You know, he's like he's like talking down on you all the time. I like to I like to freak out though. Do you like that album? That was a good I you know I like what one song. I've got something like I'm a fool. I'm a fool for you. The only because David Bowie covered it. Wait, I'm a fool for you. Oh, something called I'm a fool for you or I'm a fool or. 
It's on the Freak Out album. It's like the it's like the one standard like love song on that album. Well, we can. I feel like a pool, or I'm a pool. I don't know which song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's I'm a pool. Do you remember that? You do you remember the song? No. I don't. Yeah, I mean, I think I know which one, but uh, but I'm a fan of Frank Zappa's music. Well, at least that album and some of his. Yeah, other- I have to hear a break. Yeah, you know, I'm actually trying to find a portable copy of Freak Out on vinyl because I figure if I'm going to get into or listen to him, I should start with that album. Mm-hmm. Generally, what I've heard of his music, I never got it. I just don't. I don't get him. Well, I think one of the important things about Frank Zappa was that he really he did uh, sort of bring to light some of the issue, like like um, the issue of artist freedom with with musicians. Uh, using swear yeah, swear words in their music and that kind of thing, and he was very much against uh, the censorship. Yes, he was. So, I mean, in a way, it was like I think he was supportive of other artists and musicians. Getting, he was. Getting, he had his own label and right. he had other artists, including yeah. Ken Beefheart and you know Wild Ben Fisher. So, anyway, and even so, Alice Cooper. Yeah. yeah. So, like you know, he had his merits. He has his merits, and and you know, it's I, it, I don't. He's not for everybody, you know. He he's don't a bit like of a him. yeah. That's fine. <laughs> I mean, you know, everybody's free to. Uh, I'm now picturing like this big battle royale between David Bowie and Frank Zappa. <laughs> well, Bowie was an early fan of his, I guess, and he did this version. Uh, was it, Bowie had a group. Uh, Called the uh, astronaut, astronaut, astronauts. The astronauts. They were a group of. Uh, this is during his young American stage, and he made a record. It never was officially released. It came out much, much later. But on that album, there is a, a, a that that Frank Zappa song. And something about a fool, fool that I want you, fool something. I have to check it out. I know. Um... It's sort of the only thing I'm I'm drawing a blank, but I'm thinking of the cranberry song. I'm such a fool. <laughs> Where's the cranberry song? I think that I'm was a, a fool. Yeah. For you. Mean the group, the cranberries. What? No, I don't know. I just yeah, the cranberries. The cranberries. Yeah, I love the cranberries. Mm-hmm. By the way, they did a version, but yeah, I'm trying. To I know watch. the cranberries. Were, I, don't, I don't have the records in front of me. Like, see, if I had to talk about the soundtrack of my high school experience, the cranberries would be at the top of the list. Oh well, that's good. Yeah, I really loved Dolores. How do you listen to music these days? Uh, I have I listen to vinyl a lot. Nice. That's very I have cool. Become, I have become one of those cliche older guys who, who went back to vinyl. I went I went back on big time. That's super cool. And I listen. I do stream. You know, I have like Apple Music, but I look at that more like a radio. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, if I want to hear something new, and often you know. I, I use YouTube, you know, like when I go to a record store and I see a record, like a used record or something, and I don't know who they are or don't know what they sound, I'll find it on YouTube while I'm at the record store and I'll, I'll play it. So it's like a listening station to me. Right. But sense. I'm definitely one of those people who love the whole visual medium of um, of a vinyl record. And, you know, I like the, you know, all the cliche things like people say they like vinyl, you know, the size, the it's important. Yeah, it has. It looks important. Yeah, it's got yeah, like, weight. I agree too. I mean, I mean, because I I've put out 
my own CD. My own, uh, uh-huh. I know it's different from vinyl, but I put out my own album. And even in just a CD, that's a physical thing. And you put, you know, there's artwork that I did, like my own artwork on the cover. I had the yeah. lyrics inside and a dedication, a little writing. I typed it out on a typewriter. Yeah. And, you know, this is a while ago. This is back in the um, early aughts. Late, yeah, you know, but you know that making an object is important. So it's it's it, it, that you know, and it's music. It's just you know, I, it's it's hard to say. Yeah, I have a I have a new album out, but it's on you know, it's right. on a website. It's on a website. <laughs> it's, it's, it's just digital. Website. Everything it is real to me. It's, like it's you, weird. Your new I know. Album's on a website. Well, okay, that's an album, I guess. I know it's weird. We're 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 kind of dealing with that dilemma right now because we're working on an uh, an album. We're like, well, how are we going to do this? I think like, we should, should do it on vinyl. I don't know about CDs. Yeah, but will anybody buy it? Because nobody has vinyl anymore. Yeah, no, you're actually correct. We could just stream it, though. Because the vinyl, people are buying, if they're buying anything, they're buying vinyl. Vinyl outsold CDs. Streaming is like beyond anybody. But like as as something you hold, vinyl is, is going really well now these days. So we do vinyl and digital. And live concerts. Yeah, you, I would do digital, and CDs will eventually make a comeback. It will be this aesthetic thing that people will crave. Like Atrex? But right now, vinyl, and I would do like streaming. Okay. You should do Bandcamp. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm on Bandcamp. And then, and, then, and, do, and, and, and if you do get, the main way, if you can't get a distributor, then you, when you do shows, you you have to do the whole merch table, yeah. record selling thing. Okay. Yeah, my wife had put out a vinyl album. You know, selling, she did it. She did an album, the Sewing Sisters album, on vinyl. Mm. And she was doing a series of shows which only took place in people's homes. Oh wow! In their closets. <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> oh my gosh! It sounds as though we have to have your wife on this podcast. She so sounds very what interesting. What you would do is is um, <laughs> either the, so the person will contact her or she'll contact them. But basically, the agreement is we will do a show in your house, either in your closet or in the entrance of your closet. Wow! And do we have permission to touch your clothing? <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. And, and then what happens, I do the show, and then they will clean up. I mean, Luna and her partner will clean up the closet and put it back with the way it was. And uh, and the host could either be just for him or her or whatever gender they are, or it could be them and their dog or just the dogs, or they could have a party and they can bring their friends to, uh, to, um, to, to watch this. No money was been exchanged. There's no money issues at all. And uh, so she did 22 shows in Los Angeles in 2019, before the virus hit. And she did, yes, she did 22 homes uh, of all sorts of houses and architecture of all sorts of, sometimes there were parties, sometimes one person, sometimes (laughs) a couple. It changes from show to show. And uh, it was her and the sewing machines and 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 singing and and and, and doing it in the closet. <laughs> That's so interesting. I've never heard of anybody doing shows on sewing machines in the closet before. That I is, know. That's very good. unique. And then, and then, and, the, and the setting's kind of great because sometimes there's a party 
And the only closet available is right across from the toilet. So oh, people who want to see the show actually have to, like, be on the toilet. <laughs> Wait, what? They have to sit in the toilet or be in the bathroom area. You have to sit on the toilet while watching? Yeah. But not actually going to the bathroom. Well, you could, but they did. It's your party. (laughs) Um, Wow. She gets paid in dirty collars. Yeah. (laughs) But no payment at all. There's no no payment issue. There's no, there's no, it was a pre-sale. That's awesome. Oh, she sounds very interesting. Luna, I'll have to, uh. Well, does she want to be on our podcast? Uh, she may. You know, she, 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 you know, English is like her second language. So, yeah. it's, you know, right now it's very hard. To, it's not that easy to hear you. Oh, okay. So maybe Sorry. Difficult, uh, the difficulty would be English is a second language. But, you know, she, she speaks English and understands English. But sometimes on a telephone, it's very difficult to hear, you know, uh, yeah. another language, you know, even though you know that language. We might just have to go to a closet show. You might need a subtitle. <laughs> we might need to come to your closet. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, uh, but, um, but she, you know, we made an album. She made an album, final album. And the idea was next time we do a series of shows, we will sell the record, at, you know, at the houses, you know, like we'll put a little merch table. Okay. They'll last for 20 minutes and sell, you know, stuff. But, um, but since the virus, the the the, um, the COVID, uh, totally, you know, threw that out of whack right now. Yeah, it's weird times we are in for sure. Uh huh. Absolutely. Um, I don't know. We've we've been talking for a while. Do you do you have any anybody else have any final thoughts or or things to um, say? Just buy my book. For support sure. me, love me, worship me. <laughs> but leave, you know, that, that's all. Yeah, yeah, do you have a cult? Is there a place to sign up for the cult? Excuse me? Is there a best place to sign up for your cult? <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, actually, I do. Okay, this is, okay um, promotion. Yeah, promotion. Uh, I, have, I have a substack uh, writing. I mean, I, I write, I write a, a, almost a daily series of stories and reviews and commentary on the Substack website. And one could uh, go for free or subscribe for free or you can become a paid subscriber. It's up to the up to the to the subscriber. But it's easy to subscribe and they don't keep information on during that story. So it just means that when I write something, it'll go directly to your email and, and you can go on the website as well if you wish. Nice. And the address for that is Tosh.substack.com. Cool. And we will put it in the notes to the podcast as well. So people will have links to, they can follow the links. Um, and we'll put a link to, so people can buy your book. Oh, yeah. Best place to buy the book. And yeah, best place, um, I, I avoid usually the, the, the famous online Amazon presence. Uh, but you, yeah. but you can it. get it for, you can get my book. Any okay. First of all, any local bookstore you mm-hmm. one has, yeah. they can special order the book, or they may have it in stock. It's cool. easily attainable. Or you could do that. Or you know, my favorite bookstores are like City Light Books, who published their publishing wing published the book, mm-hmm. and they can do. You know, you can either go to City Lights and buy it, of course, but they definitely do shipping. Mm-hmm. And then my other favorite place, locally, is uh, I have a lot of favorite places, but. 
I know for sure they have copies of my book and actually signed at this point is Art Book, Art book. at Hauser and Wirth in Los Angeles. Cool. And the good thing about them is, at least as far as I know today, they do free shipping in, within the United States. Okay. Mm, bonus. So one could contact them and they can ship you, uh, I believe, uh, hopefully a signed book uh, of Tosh, my book. So we'll put a Easy link. Easy title for me to remember, Tosh. Yeah, and we'll put a link to Art Book, that one in the... Hauser work. Okay. Wait. Yeah, it's yeah. a it's a it's a great 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 um, uh, a book a visual bookstore a book on, on visual art but also they have literature as well and um, it's it's not it's not owned by Hauser and Wirth Gallery but they're in the premise of the Hauser and Wirth um, uh, um, galleries. Okay, great. Um, and Moe's books is where I of course got my copy because I'm friends. A great with- a great bookstore. A, a wonderful place. Yeah, I'm friends with Owen, who worked there. Yes. Um, Owen invited me to do a, a, a reading. Of that's store. where I met that, you. That was, that was wonderful. Yeah, cool. So Yeah, we, and we, you were there, right? I was there. I met you. Yeah. Excellent, excellent. You signed my book. Excellent. I hope it was a good experience. It was. It was good. <laughs> no, it was very Great. good. Uh, so anyway, wow. Thank you so much for being on our podcast, Tosh. This has been great. And thank you. I really enjoyed our two, three-hour, five-day discussion. <laughs> yeah, yes, and we're hoping the movie comes out and we get to go see a screening. Oh my gosh! Yeah. Yes, I'm hoping for the Cannes Film Festival, the Oscars, you know, yeah. blah, blah, blah blah blah. Well, you know, if you need a couple extras, you know, we're here. We could. Uh, that, we might. We might take. You know, we. I think we have to go. Up to, we have to go from the north. Northern California, I think, if we actually shoot this movie. So oh, that's well, all a great possibility. Maybe you guys can come up here and. Stay with us. The whole film crew. We'll, we'll, yeah, we'll do a closet show for you. Well, and the, and, yeah, and you can, <laughs> you can camp outside. Yeah, bring your, bring your trailers. You, you can camp outside. We have a field. We don't have much, or we don't have a huge place, but. Well, there's a field. The trailers will fit. <laughs> we have a tent. We have a tent. <laughs> you have um, a generator. No, we gotta get one, oh, that's especially a good for the point. fires. Yeah. I know. We probably need a generator. Because some movie stars insist on generators these days. I know they're spoiled. <sighs> well, prima donnas. They can bring their own generator. <laughs> bring your own generator. Okay. Um, <laughs> but I, thank you so much for. Uh, yeah. Oh, for oh thank you. It's thank been you. really great. What a what a good yeah. Thank you so much, Tosh. Yeah. Okay. Well, so we'll okay. stay in touch. Okay. okay. Awesome. Thank, thank you. you. Bye now. Thank you. Take care. Bye bye. Thanks for listening. Here's a song I wrote with Justin's help. That's based on some childhood experiences I had. It's called Better at Falling. And hey, if you'd like to support us, please like and subscribe to our podcast. Tell your friends about us. Go to our website, nervousending.com support and check out the many ways you can support us, including getting a water filtration system, saving on supplements, and booking us for a house concert. We'll even play in your closet if you want. Thanks. And here's Better at Falling. my eyes and concentrate and jump real high but I realized after a little while I'm just better at falling 
Just better 